Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age, if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hi, Merry Christmas and welcome to What Should I Think About? I'm Stephen. So this episode is something a bit different. As you know, the podcast is just over a year old and earlier in the year I talked to Salim about my story growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, leaving and trying to make sense of my life when I left. We split this across three separate episodes, so we thought it might be nice to bring them together for a single episode. And I've also worked on the audio of it so it's no longer in separate ears and doesn't feel like you're sitting between us as we talk over you. Anyway, as we've increased our listeners over the year and we've spoken to many different people about their own stories, we thought it might be a good idea to broadcast my story in full. So we really hope you enjoy this special episode of What Should I Think About? Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And today we're talking about um, Dad's past, present, future. We're going on a Christmas carol of JW... <laughs> pasts um no well we're just talking about your experience being a ex-jehovah's witness and what it was like when you were still yes so i don't know just start from the beginning lay (laughs) on the sofa so (laughs) yeah this isn't something i've i've really done before i've hinted at things i've talked a little bit about things on videos and uh, we've obviously referenced it on on podcasts but um yeah, it's it's a very kind of personal experience and it's something that is still actually quite um, raw for me, even though it's like over 20 years ago um, that I left Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so yeah, it's not something I felt ready to talk about, to be honest, but, but yeah, I think now is probably the time. Um, so it is quite a, a, a dense um, subject, or, um, but the slight lighter note is that you might be able to hear our dog snoring in the background (laughs) which probably reduces some of the tension a bit um so a long-running theme on our podcast is our dog's behavior she's being very good she's lying in front of the radiator but she does snore unfortunately so you might hear the odd strange noise it's it's our dog uh, pepper okay so uh so you you want me to sort of start from the beginning from the beginning so you were born (laughs) i was born Yes, <laughs> so I, I suppose I'm third generation, I was third generation Jehovah's Witness, so my both my uh, grandmothers were Jehovah's Witnesses, um, my paternal grandfather was a Jehovah's Witness, uh, my maternal grandfather never became a witness, 
Um, so yeah, I was just born into it. It was what I, I knew. It was what I experienced. It was the norm for me. Um, so my earliest memories are going to the Kingdom Hall, um, answering the Watchtower, answering at the Book Study Group, um, going on field service, knocking on doors, that sort of thing. So what what are those things that you just said then? Because not, it's not like common knowledge. Mm. So. so yeah, so the Watchtower is the magazine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you like. So they they have in the day that I was involved, it was a, a two weekly magazine, so it's produced every two weeks. Now I think it's much more reduced, but um, we would then study the magazine, the Watchtower, every Sunday. And the format of that was uh, a brother. We, the males are called brothers in the Kingdom Hall. So an elder would be taking the watchtower. The, a paragraph would be read from the watchtower, which included all the answers. And then the watchtower conducting, sorry, the elder conducting the watchtower would ask a question, which was based on the paragraph. And then everybody or anybody could put their hand up and would answer the question so when i think back to it now it's it's mind-numbingly boring because yeah. it, it's just like here, here's the answers i'm going to read them to you so there would be a brother there reading the answers and then the question would come and basically you just have to rehash those what was it in the was paragraph incredibly boring because i just went to a few <laughs> and obviously um well i went to a few because mum was mm. still going after you but um and therefore I went a couple times and I've been a few times with grandma and granddad when they'd be like babysitting as yeah. a child but I just remember being so bored but the clock's behind you so it's like really rude if you keep turning around to look at the clock but oh my god no, I because I, where the kingdom hall I went to as a child the clock was on the side wall so you could actually see it and I do remember looking at that clock over and over again thinking that hand never moves it was like it like time had stopped yeah <laughs> Yeah, I suppose for a child it's always going to be boring anyway um, but yeah the format is very mind numbing because there's no real you know no intellectual stimulation there there's nobody saying oh what about this and this doesn't make sense and how does this work no. none of that but it's just grandma basically grandma seemed excited about it she was like oh you're going to do an answer for the well, question that's different so that was the only time when it was had a, a, a bit of excitement and of course that was exciting for a child um, so you, we're going to help you prepare an answer mm. at the watchtower. We'd look at the watchtower and we'd say, right, what what do you think, Stephen, you could answer this week? And um, in the early days, it was, you know, like Jehovah or Jesus. Um, and you put your hand up and and you'd say, oh, they'd say, yes, yes, young brother Matha. Mm. Uh, or yes, young Stephen. And um, the roving microphone would come along. Mm. So there was two male witnesses on either side of the the aisle women aren't to be trusted no with the women not, not able to have the microphone um so one of the male brothers would hold the microphone for you and then you get to talk into a microphone so I, I think i did this when i was really so young i can't um i, I honestly can't remember the first time i did that mm. um but yeah very very young we were trained to give the right answer at a very very young age um but that was an exciting bit you know it's, it's your turn now this is paragraph eight this is this is your bit come on Stephen. did they have um <laughs> so you knew what questions would come up then so yeah because the answer. questions are written underneath yeah. um the, on the page so let's paragraph one 
brother so-and-so, can you read paragraph one, um, please? And they read the paragraph out loud, and then the person conducting the watchtower says, okay, so the first question is, part A, um, bloody, bloody, blah, blah, and then it's up to somebody in the audience, as I say, to rehash what was mm. in the paragraph. Mm. Um, now and again, there'd be a few scriptures thrown in, so the older, more experienced people would generally say oh yes well this the scripture in genesis 13 yeah. you know it's just a reading exam isn't it yeah and comprehension it is very much like comprehension you know when like you're in primary school and you mm. have to read um mm. something and then there's a bunch of questions to see if you comprehended it yeah. or not it's just that isn't it yeah so that was my earliest memories you know going to the meetings to do that at the watchtower um, on a Sunday, there was also a public talk, which was even more boring because there was no interaction. That was just literally somebody stood on the platform talking for an hour because in those days it was about 50 minutes, 55 minutes. So he would literally get up there and talk for an hour using the Bible. Um, but there was no question and answer. There was nothing no. like that. Now and again, good speakers would have like a, an illustration or maybe some pictures up on the wall. Some of them were more interesting than others. Yeah. And yeah, some of them were quite good speakers and you could actually listen to them. But um, as a very young child, you're never going to find that interesting. Um, But I remember going to those meetings. um, I won't go through all the different meetings that there were, but there was also a book study group, which was kind of similar to the Watchtower format, but that was in a home. Mm. So there was like a local home that you'd go to and you'd all sit there, again, listening to a paragraph being read. As I got a bit older, I began to take more of a role. So I, even as a quite a young person, I would read some paragraphs and so on. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of that. And that's that's my earliest memories, really. I remember liking the group study because we went to some... I can't remember his name. Not yeah, going to say it anyway. Not to say it. <laughs> so we went to anonymous man's house, and he had a snooker table, yes. and I was just like, "When we're done, I'll get to play snooker, <laughs> and it'll be much more fun than this." And then we would, we would get all of the younglings, yeah, and go and play snooker. I think you know where that was. I do. Yeah, yeah, that was that um, was more fun, wasn't it? <laughs> that was yeah. I mean, you were lucky in that respect because you you went somewhere cool, but. Um, when I was, <laughs> my book study groups were generally with some ancient person um, mm. who, you know, it was all musty smelling with a, a clock ticking in the background. And it was like. And there was no snooker room. <laughs> was, there was no snooker. Oh, um, no, I see. So. Just mistakes were made you should have gone to the snooker house much better but it was quite it was quite handy to go to an old person's house because it, it meant that they got a visit from somebody at least you know oh, right. um but anyway that was so that was um that was growing up very normal to me so we'd had like, technically it was five meetings a week but it was spread over three nights so for me growing up it was a sunday afternoon um, it was a Tuesday evening and a Thursday evening. That was th- those were the meeting nights, mm-hmm. um, and the the Thursday meeting sort of didn't finish till ten, really. Thursday, yeah. Oh. So um, so that was quite a late night for kids then getting up mm. for school in the next morning. So it was always a bit of a bone of contention. Um, Did they not care about the children? Does no one care about the children? <laughs> Think of the children, yeah. Um, no, it was it was just not considered a problem. You know, you you just had to go to bed as soon as you got home. Um, so life was very much it very much revolved around being a witness. Of course, Saturday morning was field ministry, 
uh, which meant knocking on doors. So I would go with my mum and dad uh, knocking on doors. So on a Saturday. Sorry? Say, on a Saturday. Saturday morning. So you would... Because you, you have to go first, don't you, to the hall and they're like, right, this is where you're going. Yes. So it starts with a field uh, ministry... Uh, field service meeting or meeting for field service uh, it's so long ago now i'm forgetting the lingo but meeting for field service is where you go first so you might go to again this person's home or you might go to the kingdom hall and you'll read a little inspirational day's text mm. often it's about witnessing going from door to door or talking to people about the bible and then the person in charge again a male Women, no women have any leadership role in the organisation at all. So women are too emotional um, and caring. <laughs> as I was told, women are too emotional too and emotional. caring. Yeah. And that would be bad. Yeah. Obviously. Why that stops them from organising people to go out in field ministry isn't quite clear. So it'd be too high, hysterical <laughs> and emotional about it. They would allow people to There's do what they wanted. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's not get into that. Um, but yeah, that was a... Uh, it was always males, and they would basically pair us off. So, you know, Brother Watson, would you like to work with Brother Phillips this morning? Um, and obviously you said yes. Sister you wouldn't be like, Smith. no, I hate Brother Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sister Smith, maybe you'd like to work with Sister um, Green. And Sister Green would say, well, actually, I've arranged with Sister um, Holmes to work with... With, oh, we've got Sherlock and we've got Holmes and Watson there, so yeah. I'm just making these names yeah. up. Um, I've already arranged to go on a return visit with, with Sister Holmes, so we were going to work together this morning. Oh, okay, that's fine. And so you have all these kind of weird sort of social negotiations going on. There's there's some that don't really like each other that much, and um, and you know, there's as a youngster, you would generally get put with either your parents, obviously, or sometimes, you know, I oh, would brother, young brother Matthew, would you like to work with? Uh, you know brother such and such today and you'd depending on whether you liked them or not you'd um you'd either think that was a great idea or oh dear um but yeah so in the early days you'd accompany somebody as they knocked on the door doing the witnessing work and then as, as i got a bit older i i started to be told i needed to actually say something so i'd prepare a little presentation on the doors um at first it was placing magazines just interrupting the middle of the podcast here because i want you to remember that you need to tell a friend about this podcast so that we can keep making cool stuff and you can talk about it with your friends because it's more fun if we're all getting involved so tell a friend share it text them about it get involved back to the podcast then so yeah. what, what is placing magazines? Placing Just magazines. throwing them through the door before they can shut it on you. <laughs> no. Shoving it through the letterbox even while they're trying to shove it back No, at no, you. you didn't do that. So things have changed a little bit now. But when I was growing up, um, you because we were a charity, you couldn't technically sell the magazines. Mm. So you couldn't say, we're selling these magazines for 30p for the pair. Um, so you couldn't say that but what you could say is you can have these magazines for a contribution mm. of 30 pence mm. um, so it's just the way you worded it so if you worded it like that then you weren't selling the magazines you were saying you can have the magazines and they were giving you a contribution to your work now of course it, this is obviously um, 
a technicality and a way to get around mm. the fact that you were really selling them because they didn't get the mags unless you they gave you the 30p no. um, but that's why you called it a placement as opposed to a sale mm. um, so we didn't say we'd sold magazines we'd say we'd place them or bibles or books or other things like that so uh, we were placing magazines mm. so yeah that was I was first of all trained to try to place magazines and it would go something like um Hello, my name's Stephen, and I'm uh, showing your neighbours this magazine about, um, you know, why is the world so bad, or, or what is there a god, or do you believe that the earth will survive forever, or whatever it is? And this article goes into detail to show you um, what the Bible says about this, and you might open a page to a picture or something. And then you might say, um, and you can read these magazines for a contribution of 30 pence for the Watchtower and its partner, The Awake. And you'd wait then if they'd be interested in buying them. And sometimes they would say, just a minute, and they'd go in their house and get their 30p. And obviously more than often they would say, no thank you, not interested. Mm. And that was if they gave you the time to do your little patter. But as a youngster, I think, people were generally a bit more patient they would let you say your little patter and then if they took pity on you they might buy the magazines mm. um but do you think didn't. people liked having um the kids come with them because then they'd actually get a chance to be heard because <laughs> if you're just all the like the oldies or the what do you adults. think the, the witnesses themselves like yeah. having a child with them? yeah because it gave yeah, you an possibly. opportunity <laughs> yeah it was a little prop you could you yeah. could get an in in um yeah, I mean, different householders would react differently to children doing that work. I mean, now I think about it, it's it's fairly exploitative, I think. Yeah. And um, yeah, unethical, I would I would suggest, but it, it obviously had its advantages for for the witnesses because yeah, it was more difficult to slam the door on a on a little, I don't know, six year old kid, like isn't the it? Yeah, so I I, do, I did do that. You I, word of God. <laughs> Slams door on face. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. To the next one. Yeah. And dogs was the other thing I was scared. Of. I mean, I hated, um, I hated people being nasty to me and um, rude to me. And I did, I didn't really like going on the ministry. But in the early days, there was a little bit of, um, I don't know, feeling of doing something important. So yeah, as a child, as a you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight year old, you feel like an adult or like a grown-up and you're doing something important so I think I enjoyed that about it I didn't like the responses I got most of the time and I was scared of dogs which was always a big fear so you know you'd walk in just into somebody's front uh, garden um, and a lot of the territory we worked on they actually had front gardens that were all fenced around so mm. often there would be dogs in there that you know some of them were quite nasty but we just kind of blase walk in and um yeah that was always a fear of mine as a child i remember someone got like their hand bit by mm. a dog in the letterbox or mm. something well every now and again there was a there was a, was a they, set... put, they put the thing through don't they no for the um when it's like the eat like the flatbread <laughs> yeah the, so the, the memorial water. there might be a special campaign to mm. get as many people to hear about the memorial so yeah and on those occasions it does become a more of a leaflet drop um so yeah they may have uh, uh, and there was there was also leaflet campaigns at various times of the year 
uh, which are a bit different to the normal magazine placements and again you might put those through the door so yeah you you may get your finger bitten but it was more for me it was the fear of a, a big dog coming around the corner and mm. attacking me so yeah that was um that was early memories are very much tied around being a jehovah's witness and um uh, yeah i think um in those days, I mean, I suppose the earliest I remember about my thinking, I remember certain things happening when I was five, six and so on. But I think there comes a point, well, we know this in psychology, that there becomes a point when you start to really understand your own mind mm. and that other people have minds. And that tends to happen around sort of seven and eight. And that is when I start kind of remembering how I felt properly about being a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and I often say that, when I was about eight or nine, that was the time when I really believed it the most. Yeah. I really believed it. And I I, re- I wanted to get baptised. I remember asking my dad, um, saying to him, I want to get baptised. I, mm. I want to be a proper Jehovah's Witness. I want to be baptised. Um, I remember listening to speakers on the platform thinking it was wonderful. Um, I, I had ambitions to be a circuit overseer and a missionary that's what I wanted to be when I was mm. growing up mm. um and it was so I was so I believed it so much um I mean the story um I sometimes talk about when I when I went to my first school my primary school I was five when I first went to school and um as a Jehovah's Witness you don't you don't do the things that other kids do so whilst all the other kids were in the morning assembly um, I would sit out in the library so I was on my own in the library and people would come up and say you know what have you been naughty Stephen because that was also the punishment area and I'd say no no I'm and I would then say no I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses and we don't go into morning assembly Mm. but I was the only one in the school so and they hadn't really had any other Jehovah's Witnesses there because it in those days you know you forget how few there were there's still a few, not very many. Well, things. worldwide, there's about eight and a half million, so yeah. I understand. But in those days, you probably only talk about a million, a couple of million. Mm. Um, and in the UK, it would have been very small. So the teachers had never met one before. And um, my mum and dad had gone to school to say what I couldn't do. And that was basically going to morning assembly, do anything to do with Christmas, do anything to do with my birthday or anybody else's birthday, anything to do with um halloween anything to do with easter um it was all i had to sit separate from all of that so Mm. it was a very isolating experience and because there were no other jehovah's witnesses in the school um i spent most of my time on my own on my own yeah Yeah, because obviously you have relatives that went eventually went to the same school but you were the were you the eldest of? I was. I was. Um, the, I do have an older cousin, mm. um, but she went to a different primary school, mm. so that's why they just didn't yeah. sort of have any experience of people like us. Mm. Um, and yes, yeah, so I remember hearing the children singing their hymns because um, the the library was actually right attached to the hall, so I could hear yeah. what was going on. So that's obviously why you couldn't go because um, it's not just like morning assembly was evil and pagan. It was because they were singing hymns and stuff. Wasn't yeah, it? I mean it was, there was a big religious element to it, so that's why okay. it was sort of group worship. Mm. Which, as a as an atheist now, I would 
I would say is you know also wrong to do. Mm. It's wrong to indoctrinate children into a, yeah. a religious um, order even then. But we don't really do that so much now. Not really. At, at school, we did sing some hymns, but to be honest, it was more just like they were just songs. Yeah. Realistically, it wasn't very religious, um, and we did. You know, it's the songs that everyone knows from school. Like he's got the whole world in his hands and such like that. And everyone's yeah. just having a nice little dance, doing like the little it's cupped hands, and it's him, quite it? no. Yeah. But then we'd finish it off with "Living on a Prayer" by Bon Jovi. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's more like it yeah. because it says prayer in it, so it was fine. <laughs> um, so that was yeah. like my experience with that. So it was, yeah. I think if we did have witnesses in our school. Which we might have, I don't know, to be honest. They probably just sat in there and didn't sing No, I don't songs. think they'd have, they wouldn't have they taken still would part, have, yeah. yeah. Uh, anything sing. that smacks of um, interfaith. Mm. So Jehovah's Witnesses are dead against interfaith. So like a lot of religions will um, have events where they get together and they, yeah, yeah. they sort of show mutual respect for each other. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses don't do any of that. No because, mutual respect. No, because they think they're all part of Babylon the Great, which mm. is the world empire of false religion. So anything mm. that's not a Jehovah's Witness is part of Babylon the Great, mm. this great harlot um, that is signified in Revelation as being you know a disgusting thing mm. um so the language they use about other religions is is really um i think it's hard for people to understand how terrible it is because they they're not a, like a, that when they knock yeah. on your door but when you read the literature um it's quite amazing how vitriolic the the way that that the clergy and uh, false religion is talked about as they as they would describe it um so yeah whilst on the one hand um you know hoping that they have their rights to to, to worship in the way that they want to worship mm-hmm. they're very intolerant of, of other people and the way yeah. that they worship which um which is i think quite hypocritical mm-hmm. um anyway that was um that was my experience um, at school was being very separate from all of it but I was in the middle of a little story actually so when when I went into the library for the first time um, I, I remember sitting there and I was just sat, sat there I had all the books I could read so I had a few favourites the history of football the history of cricket mm. um, mostly around that sort of stuff so I'd, I'd sit and I'd look at the pictures on that and read as best I could those books and I remember mum and dad asking me how I got on and they said, you know, are you okay? Do you feel do you feel a bit lonely when you sat there on your own? Mm. And I said, no, because I've got a chair next to me, and that's where my angel sits. So I I really believed that I had this chair next to me. I had always had a chair next to me, mm. and that's where my angel, the angel, would sit. Yeah, because that's what I was taught. And the imagery of that is still used today for youngsters. That you're kind of whilst you might feel like you're in a minority. If you could open your eyes and look at the heavens, you've got all these um, myriads of angels who are with you. So actually, mm. you're not in the minority. And as a little boy, five, six years old, that was the imagery that was in my head. I had this angel sat next to me who essentially was looking after me with my friend. So you're like a perfect little Jehovah's Witness boy, weren't you? You were like every parent's dream <laughs> Jehovah's Witness baby. <laughs> Like yeah. versus, like if you just compare you and mum, it's so interesting to be honest because you've got this like very sweet little story and you're like, you know, I'm sure that that would have been an example to 
other people as well. Mm. Like, well, Stephen has his little angel, so he's fine. He can stand in the adversity. <laughs> da, da, da. And it will be this story to hold up. Yeah. And then mum's childhood story, which we'll, I'll show it to her. She can listen to this and decide if it's allowed to be in or not. <laughs> when she was at playgroup or like nursery, whatever, like so same sort of age stamping and they were like what are you doing she was like i'm stamping on the ants like jehovah would stamp on all the bad people (laughs) or something to that extent and like the teacher had to tell her mum she was like she's frightening the other children (laughs) about stamp about like god stamping on them I'm not sure if that is, you know, the the story is completely accurate. Maybe we need to get women yeah, to, uh, to, to tell, tell the story. Yeah, just to tell story because I'm trying to remember bits of it. But, but basically, the yeah. essence is she was stamping and suggesting <laughs> yeah, that, that they would be stamped upon. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, which you know you have to admire the courage of the convictions on that one. Really. Yeah, but, but then mm. there's you being like, I have my angel next to me, so it's okay. Wetted. <laughs> <Well, I'm wet-ed. laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah. then how did you, you know, you so go from that to well, well, exes? But... That's a long story, yeah. Um, obviously, we'll kind of get there. Um, you both quit the band, so <laughs> eventually. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so I, I I really believed it at that time. And it was, you know, it was a fantasy, wasn't it? The fantasy was that um, all the bad people, the people that did bad things that you heard about on the news or that you read about, they'd all be destroyed god would destroy all those people and only good people would be left people that you could trust people that were nice people that were faithful um and the idea was that god had created the earth for everybody and and all the creatures to live in peace and harmony so the idea is that the idea that animals would attack and kill each other even for food was was something that they they don't believe so um the picture of what was for the future was god's going to destroy all the wicked people um he's going to put the earth right and make it a perfect paradise the whole world will be a paradise that we'll have a part in creating and even the animals will not be dangerous so no, you know we'll you'll have your vegan. own pet lion yeah we'll all be vegan including the lions including the animals yeah mm-hmm. so we'll all have um we'll all be able to pet a lion or a panda or uh, you know whatever your fantasy is and you'll you'll live in in this um idyllic existence where no one will die there won't be dying there won't be uh mourning or sorrow um, there's a scripture in revelation which was always my favorite that kind of says all that and that you know pain will be no more the former things have passed away so it was this this fantasy of living a perfect peaceful existence where you were afraid of nothing and as a child who was quite afraid of quite a lot of things i think that was very very appealing i wanted to live in that world i wanted to live in that paradise where everything was happy and peaceful and i didn't need to be afraid of anything anymore because i was very afraid of the world you know at the kingdom hall we were told how bad the world was um, you know the world is full of murderers and and um, evil people and thieves and you can't trust anybody and of course the news that you'd hear on television yeah. kind of backed that up because it was yeah. all about bad stuff very much like um you know david mitchell would i lie to you when he was afraid of the sun <laughs> um primed and ready <laughs> it's, it's the same sort of feeling i guess if, if anyone's 
you're the right audience for that on breaking the fourth wall you you've seen that episode haven't you you know yeah i think i mean the point i guess is that um different people respond differently to these inputs so um i'm not going to talk about my family members much because i think that's something that i don't want to do um but other people uh, around me maybe didn't experience the same feelings that i did because it wasn't they didn't respond the same way Mm. just like the david mitchell story where we were scared of the sun because people had talked about getting skin cancer i think for me i was that sort of person where you know i took it all to heart so i really did i i I, if somebody said the world is full of murderers and that's what i believed Mm. um because i think like that's the good example is just comparing you and mum often because mm. like she wasn't getting all like no. afraid from what they were saying. She was there, you know. She had to go. She was made to go. She would be first in and last out because Granddad would take everybody home, and you know they were always having people come, like the higher ups coming round and yeah. hosting, and you know they were in like a, at the heart of it. But she just was like, oh, "I'm going to go buy a Christmas card for my friend," <laughs> which shows the level or the degree yeah. to which she was actually concerned because she was like, "Oh no, you know what I fancy." Jackson, Michael Jackson's Thriller, which was a no-no because it had all like zombies in it and so on and so on. Which was like, oh, that sounds good. Um, so yeah. it's just different responses, different people. Different people respond differently to the same inputs, and that's I think that's we know that from psychology. You know, yeah. people have um, individual differences, which means they will respond differently to mm. the same situations. And for me, it was just really toxic. Um, and now I think about it, I, I, you know, I, I realise how toxic it was. Toxic mm. it was. Um, I've spoken about this to you before, I think. But when I was growing up, I can't remember a time when I wasn't scared. I woke up with a knot in my stomach every morning. So I don't know when that started. Obviously, as a child, very young child, didn't have that, I guess. But as soon as I could think for myself. I, I woke up every morning nervous with it. Well, I call it a knot in my stomach. You know, when you've got this kind of dread mm. that there's something that's going to, something bad is going to happen. Um, and that was around all sorts of things. It was around fear of what was going to happen. We were always told that persecution was on its way. So I was always afraid of persecution. You know, what if they tortured us? What if they, um, you know, got us in a room somewhere and made us tell than where the brothers were that was one of the things you know the brothers might be hiding and i i might be the one that that is tortured to to give up where they are um what if um yeah the other thing was blood guiltiness the blood guilt and this is one of the most horrific um concepts for a child that is sensitive is to believe that you can be blood guilty what is blood guilt yeah so blood guilt is when the bible talks about blood guilty uh, people who basically are responsible for somebody else's death so basically if if there's something happening let's say um i don't know there's a there's a hole opened up in the middle of the road somewhere and you noticed that hole and people were driving into it and killing and dying if you didn't do something about it and say you know, stop um, stop the traffic then you in some level you're you're guilty for their deaths because you could have done something to stop it so that's the concept of blood guilt so blood guilt is, is basically being responsible for somebody else's death and if you believe that the end is coming 
and that anybody who's not a Jehovah's Witness is going to be killed at Armageddon if you don't warn them and try to change their thinking and their ways then you are partly responsible for their death which makes you blood guilty so I had this weight of blood guiltiness even as a child because for me my territory was the uh, friends I had at school or indeed anybody at school my, my school mates who by the way thought I was weird anyway because I didn't go to morning assembly I didn't didn't do Christmas cards I didn't celebrate birthdays um, but now the next thing was I had to try and witness to them and try and get them to have a bible study and I even succeeded on one occasion I got this this young lad to have a bible study with me because it was really important to save these people and if I didn't do everything I could then I was blood guilty now for a child what does that do to a child's mind mm. that just made me constantly paranoid I mean and when have you done enough you know I've spent an hour on the field service this morning yeah but if it's the end is coming and you don't well let's spend another hour then well is that enough you know what can I do I need mm. to do more so you have this feeling that you're never doing enough because the stakes are so high and that you're personally responsible for other people's lives I feel like it was it, it's kind of the same as um, we've discussed this before in relation to other things but those talks and those mantras aren't really for you because you're already bought in as much as anyone could be bought in it was more to try and get people I suppose like mum to be like they wanted her to take notice of that and be more witnessing because she would be caught up for not having done enough well, time or so on do you not think because maybe, you're I already doing all the things well I don't think so I mean if, if I was doing 10 hours a month because you record your time yeah. so if I was doing 10 hours a month witnessing then why am I not doing 15 hours a month? Mm. And they would um, talk about experiences of people in different parts of the country or different countries mm. where, you know, this young man, um, regular pioneers, and he's only 16, you know, and he, he, he uses his school as his um, as his territory and he's, um, he's got five Bible studies, you know. And, and the influence is really clear, you know, why are you not doing that? Yeah. So I don't think it's that I was excessively picking up a message that was meant for the people no actually they want everybody to feel that you must do more and so you have this feeling that you're never doing enough and that message is constantly reinforced um and this idea of blood guilt was was with me so fear for me was the prominent emotion fear of blood guilt fear of persecution fear of getting told off fear of not giving a good witness so the other way you could be blood guilty was if I did something naughty as a child I would call it naughty obviously mm -hmm. um, if I did something naughty and somebody said look at that Stephen he's a Jehovah's Witness and look at what he's doing and it stopped them from listening next time a witness knocked on their door mm -hmm. then I could be held responsible for that because I'd been a bad witness so that was another way for me to be blood guilty so I was I was responsible for their not listening to the good news about the kingdom because of my bad behaviour at school so these are the sorts of weights that, that I felt as a child growing up and they, they continued as I, as I got into my teenage years I felt the same I was always anxious about 
doing the right thing, not doing the wrong thing, doing enough, doing more. So yeah, a, a life of a childhood of anxiety was how I would describe my life. Mm. You've just said about you know your quite young childhood there with your yeah. fears and stuff, um, anxieties and such, which I, I do think you know I, I suppose um, you know um, it's a, a, a bit of a buzzword now I suppose but catastrophizing mm. um, is what we discuss and I think I have a tendency to catastrophize um, so I'll say something a bit wrong and then I'll think about it for months and I'll just be so embarrassed and I'll presume <laughs> that like I've ruined a friendship or mm. if like someone who normally responds quite quickly doesn't mm. after having said something a bit off I'll presume that mm. it's all mm. done for and that's the end of that <laughs> um, like, I'll tell you the most embarrassing one it's like things that you would just I feel like normal people <laughs> would just forget about but I was at grandma I was at not grandma's I was at my aunt's we're looking at old pictures and I thought it was one of Nan and I was like oh didn't know she was like chubby when she was little and then Andy Sue's like that's me and I'm like oh I didn't mean it no back up back up delete and I still think about that and I was like a child when I said that and I'll still think about it today and I'm 24 <laughs> and sometimes I'll just be laying there and it will hit me and I'll be deeply embarrassed <laughs> um but at the time as well I catastrophized over it I was like she's ah, oh, yeah. you know she's gonna hate me now <laughs> called her chubby as a child um but I imagine that you know me and you can sometimes be similar in that way so I feel like you know I think maybe with that tendency that I think you yes. want to have as well well if you have a tendency to do that then the problem is 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 actually that's being confirmed to you by the by the magazines and the yeah. information you're getting to tell you that yes it is a catastrophe mm. if I do something that upset somebody that stumbles somebody yeah. so that they don't come into the truth as we yeah. call it then that is a catastrophe so yeah normally i think what's encouraged with to do if you know someone that has anxiety or like your mm. family member and you're trying to support them is to say well is that likely yes um or to say well i don't think that's likely or just mm. do you think you might be catastrophizing or yeah. overreacting whereas i suppose if you take those worries to an elder or the people that you looked up to for support they'd probably be like well i'm glad that you're thinking about these things well, that's Stephen. right it was <laughs> i was rewarded for that type of thinking really in my view mm. um so i mean if i'd have said i suppose if i'd have said look i'm really miserable and i'm anxious all the time and i always have a knot in my stomach and i'm scared then i'm get i'm sure that the people that loved me would have yeah. would have tried to help me but of course mm. nobody does that and you don't do that as a child no you just feel it mm. so and it's only later that you can sort of put it into words and explain what's going on in in your mind um so yeah that was um, the earliest time i can remember there was a um uh, i mean we were told that guns were naughty guns were bad you know guns mm. were bad because they kill people so we weren't allowed to have toy guns as, as children yeah. but again I took that to um, to the next level which said well if guns are bad then it's wrong to want guns and it's wrong to think about guns so once you get to that point you know you're you're constantly thinking about something that you know is wrong to think about and you just become... It's the whole pink elephants thing isn't it? Don't exactly. think of pink elephants yeah. and then you do yeah. so it's like 
yeah that that's quite stressful so you know again I, I come back to the point that yes there is an element of individual differences so not all jehovah's witnesses not all children of jehovah's witnesses will experience what i experience perhaps i'm an extreme case but it certainly contributed to those feelings and it, it absolutely it is the thing that made me feel that way um so yeah that was that was my experience of childhood which i i really resent now to mm. be honest it makes me quite angry to think about how i think my childhood was ruined by these thoughts that i was encouraged to have by attending meetings and having these this this poisonous toxic information given to me constantly about you know the end of the world about god destroying the wicked and me being responsible personally to save as many people as possible um and i think that's incredibly unhealthy Mm. um and and yeah has had a lasting mark upon me personally um i think it's mm. um the thing that probably makes it complicated for feelings i imagine is because obviously in regards to why you were there people that loved you would have thought they were doing their best of course and they Mm. wanted to make sure that i mean if you believed truly like Mm. you did um you know if you still believed as thoroughly as you did when i was being born you probably would be in it yourself wouldn't you Mm. and i would be in it because you'd think that was the best thing to do that's right so it's it is a complicated issue isn't it yeah um so then as i as i grew up a bit um as i started to enter my teenage years obviously that's always difficult because teenage years are difficult so you start to think about um the opposite sex and all that sort of stuff so i don't want to get into all of that but um or even difficult i suppose just even if it's not the opposite sex i think just um no matter what, what as a witness as you come into that awakening it can either be de- can be devastating if you realize that it's not the opposite sex uh, well absolutely well. i mean I, all can't, sorts of... I can't imagine um i would actually like to do an interview with somebody who's experienced that because mm. i think if you happen to be gay when as a as a young jehovah's witness i mean that it's hard enough anyway but that must be absolutely horrendous mm. um but for me it was because you're not allowed to have any uh, girlfriend Um, you you know you don't experiment with with having a girlfriend or having a boyfriend there's none of that if you have a for me as a man if I have a girlfriend then it would have to be with a view to marriage Mm. so it literally was that so as a 16 or 17 year old you know it was too young to get married so you had no no way of having a romantic relationship i'm not talking about sex here just a romantic relationship with somebody special to learn how to be a boyfriend Mm. do you know what i mean there was none of that so it's almost like i don't know seeing out of pride and prejudice i suppose there's no dating there is no dating dating is forbidden unless you are you do it with a view to marriage i mean how ridiculous is that you know would you like to come out to the pictures straight away that's saying I like you enough to get married to you I mean Mm. that's like the most talk about ramping up the pressure Yeah, it's ridiculous so we you know we didn't have I didn't have any girlfriends I didn't get used to feeling that I could have a girlfriend Um, it was just a very difficult time and and I I couldn't really 
you know, I couldn't have anything to do with with girls at all. You know, I just had to associate with my mates and play football and cricket and all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of suppression there, which is a subject for another time, I guess, because it's quite an in-depth topic. But mm. I think, again, that's incredibly unhealthy mm. for um, young uh, witnesses not to have any way of expressing interest um, romantically towards anybody else until you are ready to get married um, anyway so that that was during my teenage years now up until uh, I suppose I, I remember having doubts around 14 15 time and those doubts started to get quite loud and I I struggled with quite a lot of things I struggled with prayer because I felt just didn't feel like I was talking to anybody (laughs) so prayer for Jehovah's Witnesses is essentially it's not a big ceremonial thing it's really just a private you bow your head you talk to Jehovah but I always I just struggled to to feel that I was talking to anybody Um, but I did it I tried to pray and I begged Jehovah to make me believe um, more and more because I wanted to believe Um, But anyway, I had lots of doubts. I had doubts about creation because it seemed to me that what I'd learned at school about evolution seemed like kind of made sense. Mm. Adam and Eve, talking serpents, the flood, um, animals going into an ark. How did you get away with learning evolution? Because I would have thought they would have been like, that's banned, you had to go sit with the books again. No, the way that they, at the time... They told me, well, evolution is a theory. This is what mm. fundamentalists always say. So evolution is a theory. So it doesn't mean it's true, but it's a theory. So you can learn about the theory. But at the same time, I was learning, we had a book called Did Man Get Here by Creation or Evolution? And so I would read that, and that would give me alternative facts, mm. <laughs> alternative views about um, evolution and so on. But it was it didn't really stack up and I couldn't help but but worry about this this was another big worry because you know I wanted to believe it was the truth but here was all this evidence and this logic that was just just not making any sense I mean one of the big things that didn't make sense to me was animals that if animals were not supposed to kill and eat each other then why are they seemingly designed to do just that mm. you know if, if god designed all the animals then why did he design them as hunters and prey yeah. and you can't explain it away by saying well you know the teeth can be used to rip apart plants as well as flesh i mean camouflage there's a great example think about it the other way around why are animals having this fantastic camouflage mm. to stop other animals eating them mm-hmm. if they were never made to do that. What mm. is this little fashion statement? Mm. So why why where's camouflage coming? The the fact that some animals run incredibly fast and, and you know the way they hunt and their behaviours, th- this did not make any sense. Mm-hmm. It bothered me, it was on my mind. So I, I worried about all those things, but I did still want to be a Jehovah's Witness because it was all I knew everybody my 
parents, my brother, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties, all my friends, all my childhood friends, everybody, everything I did, I, 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 it was all revolved around that life. And why would I want to stop doing that? Um, so I, I suppressed all those worries and doubts. Um, and I, I decided that it was time to get baptised. Okay, so you decided to get baptised. Yeah. Um, what does that mean to people, I guess, that know Christianity and think, oh, didn't you do that when you were a baby? Yeah. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses technically don't practice infant baptism, although I would argue that that's changed now. But um, in the days when I was growing up, you didn't get baptised until you were considered to be of an age where you understood what you were doing and generally that was around 16 17 something like that some um there were some younger than that 14 and so on but there's often a little bit of discussion Ooh, very young to be getting baptized so it was felt that you needed to be of an age where you could make this decision for yourself before you got baptized you did a private thing which was you you said a prayer to jehovah dedicating your life to him so that was something like you know dear jehovah i want to say that i want to dedicate my life to you that i will always be your servant and i will do whatever it is you want me to do so you're kind of making a, a vow if you like to jehovah that you are going to um, worship him forever and essentially be his servant um, and so i did that i prayed in that way it's a private thing no one else hears that but i did that and then the baptism bit is the um, outward demonstration to everybody else that you've done that. So in order to be able to qualify for a bapt for baptism, you'd have to go through a set of questions with an elder that comes around to your house and ask these questions about, you know, do you believe this and do you believe that? And tell me about this and tell me about that. And have you dedicated your life to Jehovah? And you go through these questions and they then decide whether you're qualified to get baptised and then you get baptised at a an assembly which is generally you know a few hundred thousand people whatever a bit more than that probably um and there's some sort of pool where you would go and get dunked get dunked um and then you'd come up and from that moment you are now considered to be a dedicated and baptised witness um so they've kind of got you locked in uh at that moment mm. because you are now somebody who is you know has committed to this thing and there are consequences if you decide not to to do that anymore and of course from a personal perspective you've made a personal commitment to god so for me i took that seriously so i believe that i'd done that and i wanted to live up to that commitment i'll talk about a bit later on another version or another episode if you like um how I feel about that now but at the time obviously I, I took that seriously so yeah I got baptised I do remember sitting at home because mum and dad had my brother had gone in the car I don't know why but I was going on the coach for some reason I think everyone went on the coach didn't they that was no, going or, not no? everyone I, I did anyway and um, so I was sat waiting for the coach on my own in the living room I, I'll never forget it and I remember sat there I sat there and I I literally cried and prayed to Jehovah to make me believe it. So even on the day of my baptism, I was begging Jehovah 
to make me have faith, to make me believe it because I had doubts. Mm. And that was at 16 um, when I got baptised. So I, I, you know, I never did really get that blessing. I never did get that answer to make me believe it, even though I wanted to. So I got baptised. Everybody is, you know, congratulates you. You're suddenly a bit of a celebrity for a day. Congratulations, brother Matha. You know, and it also meant that it opened up certain other avenues so I could do things in the congregation. I could become a ministerial servant. I could do other things, um, which I, I did. You could pioneer. Could pioneer, yeah. yeah spend, spending a certain amount of time. But there was a there was an element of, um, I don't know, uh, being given responsibility, um, which we can talk about another time. But that's that's kind of me from my earliest memories as a Jehovah's Witness coming up to to my baptism journey um we've done christmas past we're now sort of on to no no, we're we're still on christmas past we'll never go to christmas future i'm just gonna throw that out there we've got two times christmas past and then christmas i like the idea of the analogy but it doesn't quite work no but i like it even more (laughs) that it doesn't work so two times christmas past and one of present Present. yeah so where are we up to so (laughs) Basically, we just got up to you saying um, you'd been baptised. You're like, right, now what? Yeah, so I got baptised. Obviously still had the doubts, but really wanted to push those doubts as deep as possible so that I could get on with my life as being a Jehovah's Witness. And there was lots for me to do. Um, So I was was very keen to, um, to do as much as I could. Um, I didn't like the knocking on doors bit of no. being a Jehovah's Witness, but everything else I actually quite enjoyed. And were you still at school or were you working now? Um, so at 16, I left school. You weren't encouraged to do um, further or higher education. In fact, it was a real no-no. Um, sometimes people did it, but it was frowned upon. Um, but certainly the message coming from the magazines or from the, the meetings, from the assemblies particularly, so that comes straight from the governing body who, who are like the leaders, was don't waste your time um, going to university or doing sixth form because this world is going to end soon. You know, why, why have a career in this world? There's absolutely no point. You're wasting your life if you do that. Uh, what you should be doing is pioneering, which means spending full time knocking on doors trying to convert people um witnessing and obviously you need to earn a living so get a part-time job so i kind of did a bit of a halfway house really um the advice i have to say that i was getting was think about your future as well so instead of going to sixth form i got a full-time job 
um, because I did have this message of looking after yourself, taking care of yourself and being responsible. So I took a full-time job and I did that for about four and a half years as a screen printer. Um, and I actually quite enjoyed that job, but I always felt that I, again, I felt guilty for doing the job mm. because I knew what, what I should be doing was pioneering. So I spent four and a half years doing the job. I learned how to do that trade. I was quite good at it. I really enjoyed it. I got on well at work. I, I was promoted quite quickly and, and I, I had my own hand bench where I produced all the stuff and it was it was a good job. And uh, But I kept hearing at assemblies and so on telling me that I should be pioneering. So pioneering is spending, was in those days, spending 90 hours a month it's reduced now but in those days it was 90 hours a month um, doing the preaching work so that could include knocking on doors doing return visits going back to see people who have been interested and doing bible studies which is where you sit for an hour or so going through uh, sort of similar to the watchtower thing that I mentioned last week which was read a paragraph what do you think that paragraph said? Yeah, yeah. and the, the answers are there, so you just have to rehash them. So I would do that as well, and so I'd spend 90 hours. So eventually I I decided that I needed to um, leave that good job I had, and I bought a window cleaning round with a friend, another Jehovah's Witness friend, and so it's we, like someone selling off their customers or something. Yeah, so you could buy window cleaning rounds. I think you still can. It's a business mm. after all. So yeah. um, if you have a, a going business, you can sell it as a business. So you essentially sell your customers. You sell your mm. book with all your customers in it. And generally customers are fine with that. They just want their windows cleaning. Yeah. So we bought a round from a guy. Um, and yeah, we did that part time. Two days a week we then window cleaned and then for the rest of the week we would spend it knocking on doors and pioneering. So I'd left my job and basically became a a window cleaner and a full-time preacher. And did you like doing that? I thought this is the side of it you didn't like, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't I didn't really like um knocking on doors. Um I didn't mind the Bible studies bit, but I didn't like I hated the idea of knocking on somebody's door out of the blue and expecting them to engage with what I wanted to talk about which was you know the end of the world religion mm. um, I just didn't like it I, I, I believed the importance of it I understood why we did it and I knew that it was something that I should do but I just found it really really difficult so it was incredibly uncomfortable as I guess most people can imagine just going up to somebody's house knocking on their door and saying something like you know have you ever wondered what the Bible says about wickedness? You know, <laughs> <laughs> what a bizarre thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I just love the one-liners. They yeah. are brilliant. Well, it was normally trying to ask a question, you know. So some would have a pattern which would go on quite a long time, but I always was quite keen on just asking a question that would get somebody interested. I don't know. It's just like, imagine if it, oh, you, you know, um, they're like honest trailers on yeah. YouTube. What if you did honest JW door knockings? <laughs> it's just like um did you know that we're we're really anti gay? <laughs> yeah. It sounds fun to you or like just like Yeah. We're talking to our neighbours to let them know that they're gonna die very shortly mm. at Armageddon 
and you're going to be one of those people. Because you're wicked. Let me show you some pictures. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Do you want to be the man of the house? <laughs> you can now. Yeah, um, yeah, if you're speaking to a woman, would you like to be part of the religion, which means that you're not allowed to actually make any decisions in the house um, because unless the man agrees. Mm. Yeah, so you don't, you don't do that. You're not no. honest. What, you, you, don't, you don't ask them if they'd like their children to sit alone during no, assembly? No, absolutely not. Uh, would you like to have a miserable Christmas while everybody else is having fun? Mm. Uh, no, you don't do any of that up front. It's all... Would you like to live in a paradise? Would you like to live in a world where there's no fear? You know, mm. those sorts of things. So, yeah, we, we I did all those things, trudged around. I mean, I walked around an area of Peterborough. I keep meaning to do... Um, Walking I might, tour. I might do it in the summer. Um, one of the, the features we did last year was this bike and psych, where I'd go on my bike and I'd talk about psychology and some of the theories whilst I'm on my bike. And um, I had my little GoPro, and it was quite cool. I might do one of those next year and go round where I used to, mm-hmm. to my patch, if you like. Yeah. And I've knocked on those doors, feels like hundreds of times, it's probably not. But I've pounded those streets hundreds of times. Going from door to door, knocking on doors, getting you, a no. You didn't get anyone, did you? No. I mean, to be honest with you, when you're pioneering... Um, It'd be different now. Obviously, you can't at the moment with the COVID thing. You can't go out. You'd be the spreaders of the plague. Yeah. But um, but back when I was doing it, of course, everybody's out at work. Mm. So there's nobody in. So basically, you're knocking on doors and there's nobody in. So in those days, you'd do not at homes. So you'd, you'd record everybody who's not at home. And then you'd go back and you'd try and call again another time. But you'd call another time during the day when everybody was at work. Did so, you ever knock at a more like opportune time? Well, that was that was encouraged. So one of the times you could go was perhaps early morning, so maybe eight o'clock. Oh, when everyone's trying to get ready to go time. to exactly. work. So you know that was encouraged. They'd I didn't like, fancy I'm busy. that. <laughs> yeah, as people just like literally like taking their drying children, their hair or something. Yeah, taking their children out like. Yeah. Oh dear. So that wasn't a great idea. The other one was evening witnessing, which I did a bit of that in the winter. That was horrible. I mean, we used to do that sometimes. We'd meet on a. Uh, Tuesday, a Wednesday evening, something like that, mm. and um, it'd be evening work. And as it's getting dark, you know, you're walking around estates, some of them pretty rough, and you'd be knocking on doors, um, and it's cold, and they're letting all the cold air in, and it's dark, um, and you'd be talking about the Bible, you know. And again, often the people would be having their tea. You've not planned to go around, have you? <laughs> or settling down to watch some tv or something after a hard day's yeah. work there's never an opportune time for the witnesses no. to knock on your door everyone's like i'm just living my life and you've just come round and you're bummed out that i don't want to talk to you yeah it's just um i mean now and again people would be rude but to be fair in my experience most people were incredibly polite which mm. says a lot for the british public really just like, oh no thank you yeah not interested thank you i mean they wouldn't give you much time of day but now and again, somebody would get angry with you mm. or annoyed, but um, but yeah, so that that was that was what I did full time, ninety hours a month, um, and then the other two days was window cleaning, which I also hated. Mm. It was such a boring, horrible job. 
carrying ladders around because in those days there wasn't the the fancy poles you get now you literally had to go up ladders so I was up and down ladders all day I worked with my pioneer partner as they call it who um who yeah we took turns on who would do the upstairs um I mean he was a bit more keen than I was I I really hated the job Mm. and then you had to go collecting the money that was an evening job as well. That was Friday evening. I'd normally go around and collect the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so winter cleaning was, I mean, total dead end, isn't it? I mean, what can you do? There's well, you no, only clean the windows. There's no development from that. It, it, that is your job. And what really matters is the ministry. So it is just a means to earn a living. And you can, you could earn a decent living. But for me, it just, just held just lots of boredom and frustration and... I hated it, absolutely hated mm. it. So yeah, I was pretty miserable. I was living a life where I was spending most of it doing things I really hated. Did you um, do anything that you liked? Because otherwise I suppose people might be like, well, why yeah. did you stay at all if you didn't really believe it and you weren't <laughs> getting any satisfaction from it? Yeah. For why though? It's <laughs> a good, damn good question, that is, Celine. Mm. Um, and it's one that I ask myself a lot and I, I kick myself about, if I'm honest. I think mm. I'm so, I, and I've, I'm less angry with myself now. But I, I was very, very angry with myself when I left that I'd wasted so much time. And the age from sort of sixteen to your late twenties, that's kind of your your golden age, if you like. That's the time when you really should be getting your career off the ground, or you know, touring Just the world, having or, fun having fun or you know but I didn't do any of that and I just feel like I wasted that most important time of my life so I I have been quite angry about that um, over the years Um, what did I enjoy I enjoyed giving talks so as a as a male I was allowed to give talks so over the years quite quickly really I progressed to giving items on the service meeting um, I became a ministerial servant, but it's if you're not familiar with the terminology, the ministerial servants are the, are the men that do the kind of legwork, if you like. The elders are the teachers and the the leaders of the, the congregation, although they wouldn't call themselves leaders, but they are. Um, whereas the ministerial servants are the people that like, look after the accounts and look after the sound system and make sure that the territory is organised properly. So it's... It's all the kind of more menial tasks, I suppose. But you're also potentially an elder in, in waiting, so you're being trained up at that point to do things that an elder would do. So that includes things like giving talks, um, even giving public talks. So I was given the um, opportunity to give hour-long talks, both in my own congregation and to go to other congregations, because I was quite good at giving talks. And um, I really enjoyed that. That was something that I I loved doing, and it's kind of stayed with me because I'm I'm now a trainer, um, and I I saw so I do that for a living now really. So I guess if there's anything that I can take from it, what I learned during those years is the bit that I do take from it. I mm. learned how to talk in front of people, how to put a, an outline together, how to keep people interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was that's the good bit I got from it I suppose so yeah I did enjoy that the other thing I really enjoyed is quick builds yeah 
what's a quick build? Quick build. So we were involved in building projects. So one of the big things that Jehovah's Witnesses were doing during that time was building halls. And they um, sort of adapted a style from America, which was to build halls in very quick time. Um, And there's a sort of specific set of techniques that you used in order to do that. Basically, before you come onto site, you, the local brothers would do the slab, which is like the foundations and the concrete floor. So as long as you had the slab, then you could get a team or multiple teams of quick builders who were all Jehovah's Witnesses, um, representing all the different trades, plumbers, electricians, brick um, bricklayers, roofers, everybody. And you'd all descend on this place for a a couple of days for a weekend long weekend generally and you would literally build the hall from start to finish Mm. at least on the slab over a weekend and I was part of the plumbing team I wasn't a plumber but I learned how to do things like pipe fitting and hanging radiators and stuff like that um, as part of the team Um, and that was a great crack that was Mm. great fun because we were a bunch of young lads going off to do a to do a kind of fun job and so I enjoyed that but I mean ultimately it was free labor yeah for the Jehovah's Witnesses they got builders in essentially for nothing mm. um so of course and that those buildings now are worth you know hundreds of thousands of pounds and a lot of them are being sold mm. in Peterborough there's one that I was heavily involved in um because I was involved in the original bit of work as well laying of the slab before the quick bill got there so I spent weekends there, weeks and weeks and weeks. Even spent nights there as a blooming night watchman to stop mm. people coming on and nicking some of the building stuff. Um, yeah, so but I did enjoy that side of it, I must admit. Now mm. I realise I was exploited, but I did enjoy it. Mm. And I'm kind of proud of what we did yeah. there. Well, about like, I mean, you've said to me before, I don't know if... You just forgot, but you said you liked the community. <laughs> yeah, the the community. Um, I mean, it's all I knew really. So that's the only community I had. There was things that I really did like. We used to play football mm-hmm. as a group every. So after the meeting on a Sunday afternoon, um, in the evening, uh, a bunch of the brothers would go down to the local park or five aside pitch and we'd we'd all have a game of football together which was yeah lived for that really especially as a young teenager that was what I lived for I loved that football that was that was great um yeah the the parts of the community were important there's obviously I had friends um yeah but it is all conditional love in in the respect that as soon as I left they drop you like a stone no, obviously, no, I know. But, yes, at the time, obviously, I had friends. I had people that, that I associated with. Mm-hmm. I spent most of my time with my family, but, um, but yeah. That was, yeah, obviously, yeah. in the way that community is kind of like, we don't really have those kind of communities much anymore, do we? <laughs> 
just interrupt in the middle of the podcast here because I want you to remember that you need to tell a friend about this podcast so that we can keep making cool stuff and you can talk about it with your friends because it's more fun if we're all getting involved. So tell a friend, share it, text them about it, get involved. Back to the podcast then. We don't really have like the village gets together and does things, do we? Mm. Like it kind of brought back or continued that legacy that obviously you wouldn't be able to... You can make new friends and do that, but it wouldn't be that. No, I think I think I did enjoy the community, but I would say that it it felt very restrictive. Yeah, because there was so much you couldn't do, mm-hmm. or so much that again, again, there's an element here of of me as a person um, sticking to the letter of of the rules, I suppose. Um, so some of them, the young ones would go to town maybe and to, to go to bars and stuff like that with with groups and I didn't do that because I again I listened to the the um, the elders and the, the meetings that were saying you know you shouldn't be doing things like that but others would do that so I didn't I didn't get to associate with them even doing those things which later in my life I would really enjoy you know love doing but so I didn't go out to bars or pubs or clubs or anything like that where some of the young ones would would do that so I felt quite isolated in that respect so I was it's kind of worst of all world really I was trying to stick to the letter of what I should be doing because I knew that was the right thing to do Um, but that isolated me from my peers to some degree even those in quite good standing within the organisation, they were doing those things and I knew they shouldn't be doing them and I wasn't doing them. Mm. So, yeah, it was... um, I felt quite isolated from my peers um, because of that, actually. Yeah. Um, I was safe playing football. um, Although even now and again, there was things talked about that, you know. So it it didn't matter what you did you always felt elements of guilt about it, mm. which, again, keep going back to this feeling of guilt and fear. And, you know, it, was, it always... They always wanted you to do things that were theocratic, you know. So, yeah, OK, you can you can play football, but, you know, don't be too competitive. Don't hurt anybody. Don't get hurt, because that'll stop you serving Jehovah or stop you going to work or... Um, and actually, wouldn't it be better to, you know, maybe get together and do some some talks about experiences? So a, a, a Jehovah's Witness um, party, mm-hmm. I say with inverted commas, yeah. would often involve like getting a mixture. Don't just have young people there. Also have elderly people and older people so that they can tell you about their experiences in the truth. And um, And, you know, you'd have a a buffet and then you might do like a bible game or something where you might do a charades based on the bible oh, um, it's just it's just absolutely so lame. <laughs> it's really lame yeah so that was a sort it's of very thing. flanders isn't it <laughs> indeedly doodly yeah so it was it was dreadful dreadful mm. Music was the other thing, of course. I was interested in in music. I learned to play the guitar a little bit, and um, we did have a group of um, young Italians actually in the congregation who came in, who were a band. Um, so there was the drummer, there was the singer, the saxophonist, 
and they all came in at the same time as as a kind of en masse and they became witnesses but of course they still played played and they would get together sometimes and i'd i'd join in and i'd i'd sort of as a bit of a groupie i suppose um they do um they do performances at weddings so they're sometimes asked to do a wedding and they'd get to play there and i i actually got involved in and i did a song on a couple of weddings mm-hmm. which i enjoyed doing i think it was terrible now i think back but i i enjoyed it and i got <laughs> i got cheers but i don't know what they were cheering for but i enjoyed it at the time and um so that was an outlet um but again you couldn't take it anywhere because you couldn't start booking dates to play there's often be there's quite a lot of ex-musicians in the congregation and they now and again one or two of them would, would do a gig it's often a bit frowned upon it wasn't the sort of thing that was encouraged um so it's quite problematic you, you just couldn't have any kind of outlet where it took you away from doing the work mm. it always had to be about the work or about building you up spiritually so something like you know becoming a professional footballer or becoming a musician or that was forget that yeah you know even if it was you know doing some gigs on the weekend well you know is it going to stop you from going on the ministry on a Saturday morning I think they were all right with singing and stuff because you sang hymns so like grandma would say to me when I did go, like, oh, I heard you singing the hymns, very yeah. nice. Because, like, me and you Well, the both... Kingdom Melodies, they're not called hymns. Oh, whatever. <laughs> hymns. God songs. Kingdom songs. God songs. Religious yeah. songs. I'm um, only pulling you up on that, because anybody listening that is a Jehovah's Witness will go, hymns? What are they talking about? Hymns. So they were not called hymns, they were called Kingdom songs or Kingdom Melodies. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's singing as part of worship. Yeah, isn't that's it? what I mean. Like that, that yeah. was okay. But I guess if you took it further, further. Yeah, you but, couldn't. I mean, performance as well. You think about a performance, at like a rock gig or something. There's mm-hmm. lots of showing off, lots of strutting around. Oh, oh no, you can't do that. You know, that's I bet Queen was bad, bad. Oh, crumbs. bad, bad, not good for lots of reasons. Um, and of course, you know, women were supposed to be chased chased with the t not a d so which means that that they weren't supposed to do anything that would be sexually provocative or be seen as that so you know a woman selling on stage strutting her stuff was absolutely out of the question i mean she might be allowed to sing but um but yeah it's all very very restrictive and very very hard to to sort of enjoy anything to any degree so you felt constantly um restricted and constantly worried about doing anything that would be considered to be worldly so there's a term worldly. i'm worldly apparently yeah so worldly people are people who are in the world so we should be no part of the world Mm. um which means that anything that the world does we need to sort of stay away from so things like going to rock concerts and so on whilst it was tolerated again um it was often looked down upon um certainly not playing or, or being a band member or something like that although there were exceptions because there always are you know so there are some 
um, musicians who are Jehovah's Witnesses, apparently. But... Apparently, but I imagine mm. that they probably were their career first and then they've entered uh, yes, and so on. that's right. Um, next thing um, is, so obviously you meet mum at some point, yeah. now wife. So I was, by this time I'm in my mid-twenties, so I'm living my life as a ministerial servant, I've doing quit builds. Yeah, you're only 22, I think, when you meet mum, aren't you? Am I? Yeah, well, she was 18, so that must make you 22. Okay, early 20s. So quite wee, really. Quite a young lad. Um, But yeah, ministerial servant, giving talks, various different places. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also the... Uh, second school uh, ministry school overseer so I'll need to explain what all that is so in the um, they don't do this now apparently but when I was growing up which was probably the only good thing about it was they had this what they called the ministry school which was essentially um, where you learned how to speak um, as a speaker if you like Mm. preacher teacher and um, so the brothers would do things like give Bible readings or have a little talk that they would, the number five talk. What? <laughs> if you're an actual witness, you'll know what that means. The, num- the number five talk was like a little mini outline that you'd write and you'd have some scriptures that you had to put in there. And so you'd, you'd design a little course, um, a little, like a course really, but a little um, talk for mm. five minutes. Um, and... Um, and then what you'd get is after you'd done the talk, the uh, ministry school overseer would say, they would give you counsel from the platform. Mm. So they'd say, okay, Brother Matthew, that was a really interesting talk. Thank you very much. Um, now, what you were working on this week, and you'd have a list of things you were working on, and um, things Not like feedback. punctuation or um, repetition for emphasis or use of outline. These were all kind of, speaking qualities or points use of gestures illustrations and so on and they'd they'd mark you on how well you did that and there were you either got a good which was a g or you got a w which was a work on this point yeah they never put bad that's the thing like at school they'd they'd never go like awful we did we did what went well and even better if yeah exactly so this was a w if you didn't quite um get up to whatever standard the the overseer thought you should be up to i mean this was purely subjective um but anyway so and once you got a w you couldn't go straight to a g Mm. so the next time you did a talk you'd have to work on that point again so let's say gestures you didn't really brother matter i think you could have done more gestures there's some examples here where you could have you know for emphasis you could have done this or to describe something you could use your hands to do that so i'd like you to work on that point next time please brother matter mm-hmm. so the next time you had a um a talk to do then they would he would say uh, okay brother matter you were working on uh gestures so this time i really saw you improve in the area and you did this and you did that so i'm gonna let you move on um oh sorry no you didn't move on to the next point so we'll see have a look at that again mm-hmm. so you get an i which stood for improved and then you'd get to do it again. And finally, if you were good at that, you'd get a G. So it's spelt wig. Mm. So you got to work on and improved and a good. But some some brothers got stuck on certain subjects forever. <laughs> like WWWW. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, and my job when I got to be a ministerial servant was uh, we split off into two schools. So we'd have the, the main school, which was the 
the main auditorium but there'd be a second school so that'd be a smaller room where you'd, we'd go off and we'd do the same thing but in the smaller room and I was the overseer for that even as a ministerial servant in my early 20s I was counselling brothers and sisters who did a slightly different thing because they weren't allowed to stand up and do a talk but they could do like a demonstration with each other um, but I'd be counselling them saying right sister such and such I'd like you to work on this area and some of these guys you know, some of them were like in the 60s and 70s you know brother Hodges I'd like you to work on this point now some crusty 70 year old bloke mm. um, anyway that was but I kind of enjoyed doing that um, so yeah I was doing that and I was still pioneering although I was struggling and I did come off I can't remember what I came off just before I met you I think I did because I, I found that it was just I was just so unhappy that I just couldn't cope anymore. And that was kind of the first moment when I started to jettison things off, actually, which I hadn't really considered at that point, but that was my first moment. But I was still very much a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and, uh, and I met your mum uh, through a relative, through a cousin of mine. And um, Wasn't it at like a convention or something? No, it wasn't a convention. My cousin invited me up to... Um, stay and uh, different part of the country and I went up there and met Sarah who was young beautiful very nice but very quiet mm -hmm. but anyway we um, there's a bit of matchmaking going on to be honest and um, we both kind of liked each other but we were invited to go out for the day to Alton Towers where I got to ride on all of the um, rides, yeah. which I would never normally do. And neither really would like Mum, them. which is quite <laughs> funny. So you were both just like screaming on roller coasters Probably. because it had been like this contrivance to get you out. And they were like, we'll uh, put them on a roller coaster. That will bring the romance out. Uh, no, I think in the day, back in those days, I think, I think it was just Sarah fun. was quite was she into, into it? it. Yeah, but I wasn't. But anyway, mm -hmm. we, we did. We You got on the roller coaster. Yeah, but of course... As we've said, as as a Jehovah's Witness, it's like straight away serious. Yeah, so, so as did soon, you tell your mum and dad to like, oh, I went to the Alton yeah. Towers? And like, oh. So as soon as you start doing that, I mean, as a group, it's perhaps slightly lower key. But as soon as we said, right, I asked if she wanted to go for a meal. So we went to a Chinese, um, proper Chinese restaurant, not a Chinese mm, takeaway. Yeah. Uh, so we went to a nice Chinese restaurant in um, Colchester. And... Mm. Uh, yeah, that was that was when I first first had a girlfriend. I'd never had a girlfriend ever, mm. really, up to that point. I'd had a few interest, a few bits of interest, <laughs> if you like. Like a job application. <laughs> I'd been interested in one or two, and one or two had been interested in me, but that was the first time I actually had a... Mutual interest. Uh, yeah, mutual interest, up to, you know, in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so we started going out. But, you know both completely inexperienced about a relationship again i'm not talking about anything physical no, no. i'm just talking about how to be you know a boyfriend or how to be a girlfriend so mm. yeah that's um that's how i met mum it was through through relatives and um and then it was a bit of a long distance relationship really because i lived in peterborough and she lived in warrington and in those days there was no skype um we spoke on the phone and we wrote letters to each other yeah which is quite sweet yeah Mum's still got all the letters, I believe. She does. They've been tied up in a little ribbon <laughs> in a box. Yeah. 
Yeah. That was us um, kind of getting to know each other. I mean, it's quite funny now because we we talk obviously a bit more openly now about what what was going on at the time. But I was still very much into it. And I decided that I wasn't going to marry anybody mm. who wasn't at least an auxiliary pioneer. Okay. So that means... So, aux- so mum had to become an auxiliary yeah. pioneer. So auxiliary pioneering is when you spend 60 hours a month. Yeah. But it's a, like a an on and off thing. You don't have mm. to commit to it for a year like you do with no. pioneering. You could just do it for a month. And so she'd done that a few times. So as far as I was concerned, she kind of just about scraped through the... <laughs> passed the test. Oh yeah. dear. I think I, I'd bent the rules a little bit. Um, um, but yeah, I decided... I'd... Your personal rules. Yeah, of course, my yeah. personal rules, yeah. But I think, um, yeah, I decided that, okay, she's spiritual enough. Because I needed a spiritual wife. Mm. Um, and um, and so, yeah, we we spent about 18 months, really going out and then um I said to marry me and we got married yeah quite quickly as well isn't it from the mm. it's not like you, witnesses don't seem to spend a long time planning the wedding do they really because it's all done at the hall so it's not like there's lots to decide where to go because you'll go to the hall won't you and yeah I mean there's so, still depends. there's still lots to do some people do big weddings and some don't I suppose yeah it depends on on the person I mean I think um, some weddings, some witness weddings are quite big and they're quite extravagant affairs. Mm. Um, ours wasn't. But the, the courtship, as they call it, um, is generally quite short. You don't, and you, like for you, when, you know, your boyfriend, you've, you've been together for what, seven, years. seven years and when you're ready, you'll you'll get a place together and you'll live together until you decide you can afford or you want to get married and you'll get married if you want to if you don't but there's none of those decisions um for a jehovah's witness you know mm. you have to get married if you can live together yeah there is no sex before marriage so you can't live together and even if you're living together or if you're in the same house there's questions asked mm. about whether you know anything's going on um so yeah if you want to be together you've just got to get married yeah there's no, there's no other way. That's the well, only way. I was way. speaking with someone about that, and they basically said, "Yeah, well, we've got to get married because obviously, hint, hint, we can't do anything until yeah we're married." And I was like, "Okay, yeah, all right." right. It, but it was just a bit bizarre because it was in a setting that you wouldn't really be discussing that, and just yeah. how at the forefront of a person's mind that was. I was like, mm. "Okay, it's putting a lot of pressure <laughs> on that," but you know. Yeah. It's not healthy, I don't think. I mean, you know, to be fair, if you go back 50 years, I guess that was the way um, everybody did things. It's just, it's not in line with with the way that society works. But I suppose, like, in a sense, like, it was the accepted Mm. behaviour. But a lot of people were still doing things. Oh, yeah. um, But you wouldn't get, like, disowned by your entire family and community if if you got found out. That's right. (laughs) yeah at the back of of every young person's mind is the fear of disfellowshipping as a witness so if you're disfellowshipped then it's just another word for shunning and it is pretty brutal you know it it is literally your parents just ignoring you in the street it is your friends ignoring you literally not even saying hello to you not talking to you having nothing to do with you um apart from what's called necessary family business so um yeah it's i think it that's one of the most difficult um behaviors of the religion for me 
and um, one of the most um, appalling, really. And, and I think it's dangerous. It, it, it isolates people. Um, sometimes some people are quite vulnerable, actually. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah. So, but that's always in the back of your mind. So any any misconduct, you know, any um, any getting up to something, and it doesn't just mean having sex. It could it could just mean getting a bit too touchy feely. Let's say. Yeah. Um, these things are still considered to be unclean, mm. and so you could find yourself up before a judicial committee, where yeah. three elders um, ask you all about your sex life which is really quite bizarre yeah yeah but But that didn't happen to me because i was obviously uh, i i followed the rules yeah i'd always followed the rules and i i never wanted to do anything that that would put me in that position so um so yeah we got married at the kingdom hall um it was there was a talk we said our vows we we had a reception, which was actually quite a nice reception. I, I still think that sort of thing is great because everybody brought food. It was in a, a kind of sports hall, yeah. Um, and everybody chipped in, and so it wasn't particularly expensive, um, but it was lovely. We had lots of people there. Mm-hmm. Again, we had a band, so that was nice. Um, so yeah, that that's good memories. I think on that score, that was a nice. That was a nice wedding. Um, and then we moved into a house in Warrington. Yeah, you do it all in one, don't you? So you get married, move in, off you go. Well, Begin kind of, life. yes, indeed, yeah. So I'd, I'd lived in the house, uh, we rented, so I'd lived in there before um, we moved in. Um, and then, obviously, when when we got married, then we back, went to our house for the first time. Yeah. Um, so that we started our life together there in Warrington. So at this point, I was, I'd come off from being anything ministry or something or anything because I'd moved from Peterborough up there. So there's a process that you go through where you have to show that you're, you know, up to the job. So um, I was, I, I, I'd started another window cleaning around in Warrington to earn a living because, of course, I had no qualifications. Mm. Um, and then did get a job with another witness um, treating lawns, mm-hmm. which was, I won't go into that too much, um, but that was another example where I started to see Jehovah's Witnesses for who they really are. Mm-hmm. And some of the behaviour around that was, was, yeah, in my view, um, totally wrong. But anyway, that's um, that a different story? that's a different story. But you're five years off timeline wise. You're five years off leaving at yes. this point. I mean, is it bubbling up more, or it is it just under is. the surface? It or? definitely is. Yeah, I remember sitting in the Kingdom Hall in Warrington, feeling again that feeling of sort of tearing up because I I really don't believe it. I'm yeah. really struggling to believe it, and um, yeah, and and I'm really. I'm really having difficulty. But anyway, I, I got made a ministerial servant again, started to give talks. Um, became part of that community. Became part of that community, different congregation, but same sort of stuff. Um, Did you tell anyone? Or like now you have this person that you're meant to trust completely, mm, your wife? No. No? No. No, I didn't, um, I didn't tell my wife at all about how I was feeling. 
I was still trying to convince myself. I was yeah. still trying to make myself believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, this gets a bit fuzzy in my mind, really, in terms of where it was that I started to make changes and decisions. Because I remember, as I said, sitting in Warrington congregation, thinking these things, feeling really stressed and sad and mm. confused. Um but I must have limped on really in Warrington because it was only when I came back to Peterborough that I started to say things. So I'd started a business with my dad. Although I was living in Warrington, he was in Peterborough. We'd started a business, which was my own lawn care business. Um, And my plan was to, to... live in Warrington but travel down to Peterborough every now and again to do the work and then I'd go back home but that became obvious that that was just not really practical and it became that that would be a better economic stream than what you had yes like because obviously there wasn't much opportunity in Warrington and we started a business we're we're very serious about the business we spent a lot of money advertising we've done a lot of work trying to get people interested in in being customers nice to just have that and have yeah. the money and hmm. be comfortable. So we um, so we made a decision to move down to Peterborough and rent a house in Peterborough, which is what we did. Um, that wasn't easy. Obviously, um, your mum leaving Warrington, um, leaving a family behind, um, that wasn't easy. But we we knew it was the right thing to do. So we moved to Peterborough and um, rented for a year or so and it was really during that time when I I, I do remember having that conversation with my mum and dad um, obviously I'm a grown man now I mean, I'm a married man um, you're in homes now yeah I've, actually you'd just come along so I remember saying to them like you know I, I, I'm <laughs> it's quite funny really because I wish I'd have said something really intelligent but I think it was pretty pathetic what I said, really. It was mm. like, I'm a bit fed up with being a witness. <laughs> <laughs> Not fancying it. No, it's like, a bit fed up sounds like you're a bit fed up with, you know, that brand of soap or something, yeah. doesn't it? You know, but, um, yeah, I'm a bit fed up with it. <laughs> but that that's what you'd say, isn't it? You wouldn't... Well, not really. I mean, it's not... I just don't know why... The I just culminate. didn't know how to say it, I suppose. Sometimes things, you just... Things fall out, like on the phone. I said, have a nice time when I didn't know how to sign off on Mm. the phone. Sometimes the words just tumble out and you said it. Yeah, I didn't know how I was going to say it. So that that just came out. And and yeah, then I I said, I explained. And I, because by this time I'd come back to Peterborough and again had been made a ministerial servant and was doing all the things. um, But I came off because I thought, I can't do this anymore. I don't. I just need because I'd had I feel like I'd had this battle going on in my head for the last sort of fifteen years mm. with myself about mm. whether I really believed it or not, and I'd I'd quelled those thoughts because I wanted to believe it. I wanted to to think it was the truth. Therefore, I'd made myself believe it, but not really. Um, and I thought, Do you know what, I really need to sort this out. Mm. So my plan was. I'm going to come off from being a ministerial servant 
Um, I'm not going to knock on doors. The only ministry I'm going to do is go to people that already have the magazines. Yeah. We used to call them root calls. So people that already took the magazines, I'd visit them. And there's no danger of them becoming a witness. Because as you mentioned before, unfortunately, I'd never dragged anybody in. Very mm. unsuccessful witness. Because mm. I'd never brought anybody no. into the, the organisation. And at that point, I was glad I hadn't. But I thought, you know, I'm going to stop doing all that and I'm just going to take some time to think about it. And do you know what? I'm going to do something which I've never allowed myself to do, which is to read books that are not Jehovah's Witness books. Yeah. Um, and so I did all, all that. I read for a year or two. I read about evolution. I read about religion. I read about philosophy. And of course, I wasn't, I didn't become an expert over that time, but... I I read enough and thought about it enough to know that I did not believe it. And was that running up to the point where you said to your parents, "I'm a bit fed up," or was that bef- was that that was afterwards? at the start okay. of that process? Yeah, mm. and I mean, I've told you before mm. why why particularly at that moment was it was partly because I I had this battle going on in my head for so long, but it, the, the real catalyst was you I'd watched you being born and I'd held you in my arms um as a baby and I thought to myself what am I going to tell her what am I going to tell her am I going to tell her this stuff as the truth Mm. when I'm not even sure if I believe it so I need to make sure I believe it before I can teach you so it was really you that was the catalyst that made me I've got to do something about this now um, so that's when I made my announcement that's when I came off from being a ministerial servant that's when I stopped knocking on doors and I just gradually I read and read and read and as through that period I, I just gradually withdrew um, Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses call it fading and so that's what I did. I successfully faded, yeah. <laughs> which means that... You didn't make a big splash. There's no big splash. There's no point where I write a letter to the congregation and say, Take I no off, longer yeah. want to be a Jehovah's Witness. There's no no going out with a bang, you know, at the meeting one night saying, this is all rubbish, you know, yeah, stop yeah. believing it. There's no me going around talking to everybody else saying, look, are you sure this is true? Because I don't think it is. You know, there's none of that. It's just me personally making a decision. Mm. I'm going to leave. When So you said about how you talked to your parents, yeah. but what did you say to mum? Because obviously at one point in time you were you were making sure that she was spiritual enough to yeah. get married to and that she was doing enough hours, barely, <laughs> um, I would add. Um, she scraped through. She scraped through because <laughs> mum wasn't really putting in the hours, to be honest. And, no. Um, you know, she did that for the sake of you wanting to get married yeah. to you. Um I'm not sure. She was well, aware. I'm not sure. I wouldn't. I'm not. Was gonna, she aware? I'm not going to claim that. But she thought she should because there was obviously her own parents. Yeah, as well she, to she did those things before she met me. Yeah. So I'm not going to pretend she did all those things for no, me. No, no, I misunderstood. So, you know, you're like, okay, good. She's ticking said boxes. Yeah, exactly. You know, people's um, like Tinder requirements. Yours was like auxiliary <laughs> seven or whatever it's called. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. she had that, and then obviously you you're in a different point what did you say yeah I don't remember the 
uh, actual conversation but um yeah I, I obviously i told your mum that i had my doubts mm-hmm. and so i told her what i was doing and i mean she's always been very supportive and um you know happy to let me do whatever i sort of felt i needed to do um i've kind of only recently found out that there was quite a lot of talk around that time yeah i guess to um her about what i was doing Mm. naively i thought people just leave me alone to get on with it but um kind of later found out there was quite a lot of bad mouthing me Mm. um but never from never from mum um but i think she probably had to put up with some of that Mm. um she had to put up with some of it from the congregation I guess, um, but more, she decided to carry on going because I said I do remember saying to her, "Look, I, I don't want you to stop going because of me, um, and I'll, I'll support you." So I actually carried on going Dropping, to the meetings, yeah. even actually going to meetings oh, yeah. for a while to look after you as a baby, mm-hmm. help, help with you, um, and then um, I decided to stop going altogether. But I would drop, drop you off and pick you up again. Um, I was keen not for my decision to be forced upon her. I wanted her to to do whatever she felt was right. Um, and so she carried on going for a year or so, and um, and yeah, eventually started to 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 have her own views about what was happening. I kind of don't want to go into too much about how no, she was thinking, feeling, because yeah. that's hers to talk about if she wants to at some point if she ever wants to mm. um obviously what we're doing here is we're we're talking on a podcast um which is quite a you know it's open anybody can hear it so mm. i think i'm trying to be careful not no, yeah, to obviously. drag people in no i'm not saying about what she sure. was necessarily thinking but what you were thinking yeah. in relation to yeah her. so i just just didn't want to force her to do or to make her do anything she didn't want to do no. or stop doing something she wanted to do mm. but she came to her own decision after a year or so and so we basically we we stopped we all jettisoned. going to the meetings mm. um and yeah but i never i never actually wrote any Formal disassociation goodbye. letter no. or anything like that um i know some witnesses some ex-witnesses feel that's important because in some in some uh, concepts, you're you know you're still part of it unless you actually break to a proper break. I've never felt that personally because no. I don't really care what the congregation thinks. No, if they think choice. I'm still a member, well, <laughs> knock yourself out, mate, because <laughs> mm. I know what I am. Mm. Um, so I know I'm no longer Jehovah's Witness. Whatever. Yeah, it's been twenty years now, no, so yeah. it's a long time. You ago. just. Um... All you have to do, I think, is just make sure it's not on your medical file. Yes, exactly. Because, yeah. like, uh, if I get any need for blood, I'd like it. Yes, please. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, so we left. And um, and I would like to say then that life became wonderful. But I think that's the start of your journey, really. That mm. really is just the beginning of a very, very difficult journey. For me, anyway. So that's part three then that yeah. we'll be going in. Um, yeah, so perhaps the next time I can talk a little bit about that next phase, which yeah. in many respects I think is um, the most important one because mm-hmm. that's the point where you start your life from scratch. So I, I generally say I was 30 when I 
when mm-hmm. I left. I've never actually said how old I am. So I was I was born in 1967, um, and I left when I was about 30-ish. Um, so, yeah, it's about about 20 or so years mm-hmm. since I left. It's there's not an exact point, so it's difficult. It kind of mm-hmm. gradually faded, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's a long time, and, and I've watched in interest as. Um, as the XJW community has become much more vocal and mm. has been able to connect through the internet, which I think is an interesting development. Maybe talk about that later. Christmas <laughs> carol past past oh, you're still going and present that, yeah you yeah. still because it's happy, yeah because it's been in all two so now it's in the final one <laughs> so we've done past past and now we're doing present and that's it there will be no ghost of Christmas future <laughs> he no. is on holiday um so yeah you've just left um you've got a small child probably about two by the time you finished fading Mm-hmm. Um, and mum's left and you're both left but it's about you but obviously like mm. for context mm. you're married but it's a whole non-witness house now it is now what I guess so, so. I had a business with with my dad which we carried on doing um, and but at this at this point I'd realised how behind I was ed- educationally so I left school when I was 16 as I said went straight into a job um, most of my peers had either uh, got a sort of apprenticeship or when they left school they got an apprenticeship or they'd perhaps gone into sixth form to do something um, it, in those days because I'm quite old in those days in the UK not everybody went to uni well there wasn't loneliness the way it is now it was a no. bit more an elite thing to go to university yeah I mean, it's still quite a decent chunk and if you were good you had the opportunity but um but yeah so lots of my friends didn't go to university they they did sixth form and then they perhaps got an, an apprenticeship or um a good job that you know as a, a trainee something or other so anyway when it when i got to uh my 30s i hadn't done any of that stuff so i hadn't done an apprenticeship i hadn't done any of the further education either through work or um, as part of my sixth form, whatever. Um, and I, I knew that I didn't want to carry on doing the lawns forever. It wasn't really what I wanted, wanted to do. Um, and these things called computers had become quite popular mm. by then. Ah, yes. <laughs> the old computer. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is hard, I think, for people, younger people, to understand what, what, the world was like before computers became ubiquitous but when i was growing up when i was sort of 16 15 16 um our computer suite was like five computers which were the old um, black screen with green right lettering if you like green Mm -hmm. typeface and um that was computers and you basically to use them you had to program you had to code growing up they obviously started to become a bit more user-friendly and windows came along so by the time i'd left the witnesses 
we were on sort of Windows 95, something like that. Um, and the GUI interface, graphic user interface, which we all just take for granted now, with little icons, you move mm-hmm. things around, you drag and drop and all that. That was that had just come in. Um, and computers were obviously becoming used in lots and lots of areas. Spreadsheets had come online, word processors, very important. So I decided that I really needed to understand about computing and maybe maybe that was a, a future career for me. So I did an A-level. I went to college for one evening a week um, for two years it took me. <laughs> yeah, because if you're going once a that's week right, it will take yeah, a Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it took me two years to do this A-level, which I scraped through. I did an exam, got, got me A-level. Not a particularly good grade, but I did get a pass. And then before I actually finished doing the A-level, because I was learning about computers and particularly the bit about the apps like um, applications like Word and Excel and all that um, I saw this job advertised uh, which was as a, an adult trainer in computer applications so I just thought I'd apply for it went for an interview got it got the job straight away so I basically handed over my business to my dad said look you know it's yours now mm-hmm. Uh, he carried on doing it, keeping it going, which would be handy for later on because I did come back to it at one point. I, I took this job as a as a trainer. So I, I was training. It was part of the regional college outreach, if you like. They got a centre in the town where we did this training for adults. It was funded, so the government would pay for it. And, uh, yeah, did that. It was only about a year really doing that, but that was a very formative time for me in relation to because um, I'd left the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I was still working with my dad, and I had no friends. Um, I was busy enough because yeah. we were raising you, and I had my wife, and but that's where you make friends when, like, when you leave because I think school and uni is just an inbuilt place to meet people constantly, and you bound to meet someone that you like and can be friends with yeah because you meet so many people constantly um and then after that it's like your only opportunity is work well that's right and i was just working with with dad and and the type of job it was was you didn't didn't interact interact with anybody so um yeah it was a kind of funny time in a way because i still lived my life like a jehovah's witness really we didn't really do much at christmas we didn't do i didn't do anything didn't go to pubs i didn't so um, slow burning getting into yeah, things, wasn't it? I guess. But when I when I started this job, there was suddenly this little group of people that I uh, became friends with and got to know, and um, yeah, that was a very formative year. It was a great year. It was a difficult year. It was a confusing year, but it it was important. It was a way for me to suddenly. Um, become integrated an, well yeah and an adult mm-hmm. I I feel like um, after that it was almost like that was my adolescence mm. you know like when people um, when they're adolescent they they start to experience things they've never experienced before um, that was like me but mm. I was 30 yeah 30 odd Um so it was a very strange time and I, I still think back on it and I don't really know what to make of it but mm. it was kind of important for me and I did make some friends there uh, one of whom is still a, still a really good friend 
Today we're just interrupting the podcast quickly to do a little reminder because people always forget by the end so we're just telling you in the middle that if you want to be part of growing this community you want to have more people talking about it and to be able to talk about it with your friends then you need to share it with people. Please like it, please leave a review if you can. Subscribe, you know, text a friend. Yeah. Someone that you know will like this, text your dad, I dare you. (laughs) I'd love to know that more daughters are talking to their dads about interesting things in politics and science and And also if you want to reach out to us um the twitter handle is at what sitter so it's what and then s-i-t-a what should i think about and we're pretty active on there yeah ready to have a chat when you say we dad does more of the tweeting (laughs) um but i do go on it yeah you do i do i'm getting better at it i've been taking a while to get used to twitter it's new for me (laughs) So yeah, that was a that was an important time. I, I left there and I took a job for a food production company as a as an IT trainer after a year or so, and help desk analyst. So I would actually sit on the help yeah, desk and so answer when questions. Yeah. Jammed the printer or yeah, printer jam or forgot the password or couldn't. Or was uh, like, needed. can I please unsend this email? Yeah, I'm like no, you cannot no, do that. Not. That is not how email works. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I have had people crying on the other end of the phone saying, I've, I've sent, sent this, this awful I've sent this email. email to a customer. Complaining uh, about Yeah. Them. There's a psychological thing around this, whereas if you're talking about somebody mm. in an email you that you're sending to somebody sent- else, it's very easy to send the email to that person. <laughs> and that happened a few times with people. It's awful, isn't and it? If that's a customer, then that could be very bad news. No, I know. That's why that worked, though, when... <laughs> When certain times people write things about a customer yeah. and they're like, this is obviously customer damage. If they try and claim otherwise, they're lying. And I'm yeah. like, shouldn't write that because they can request. Anyone can request to see anything regarding themselves. So Be very careful. Be very careful. Anyway, yeah. So that was my job. I did that for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose during that time, I realized that I didn't really like IT. Hang on. <laughs> I've what been here doing? before. Exactly. I'm yeah. not doing this again. And you got out of the IT crowd. Well, one thing happened was that I got made redundant from that job, but they still yeah. wanted to keep me as an employee. So they they shuffled me into a different department, which was the manufacturing excellence team, which happened to be a fantastic department to be in because I learned so much about so many more things about management skills, about manufacturing lean manufacturing oh just learned so much that that was a fantastic period for me um got to meet some great people and that was the making of me and my career so i did carried on with that for a while got made redundant again properly this time and had to leave because the department got closed um and then started my own business up so yeah that all of that is kind of is not that relevant to my coming out from jehovah's witnesses but it it reflects a struggle. Um, I've I've always felt that I've had a struggle, and I think that's that's um, that's affected my behaviour, my thinking, mm-hmm. all throughout. Because I've always felt that I've been behind everybody else. So when I was sat on the help desk, I was in my thirties, but the people around me were in their twenties, and the reason for that was obviously because I'd started late. So I felt like my career was was like behind everybody else's, um, 
and that's always been a, an element of frustration and it's also made me feel like I'm, I'm in a rush mm. um, and there was times during that period when I think back now and I, I don't like myself yeah I don't like the way I behaved I don't like my aggressive behavior at times I was never physically aggressive but I was very aggressive in the way I spoke to people mm. and in the way that I demanded that I you know got what I wanted um so I do regret a lot of my behavior during that time um and I guess you know what I say next is going to sound like an excuse for that and I don't suppose you can excuse bad behavior but I think the reason for it was because I felt this tremendous sense of frustration urgency and loss really that I needed to make up for and if people were in my way then I needed to get them out of my way Mm. but that's I think that's not just a fault of how you grew up that's a fault of our society though that decides when is the right time to be doing something and when is like when you achieve that like um my partner constantly is stressed that he's not already got his degree because yeah. I've got mine and then he started doing his because mm-hmm. he didn't know what he wanted to do yet we put so much emphasis that by the end of sixth form you're going to begin your trajectory into your higher education degree which then locks you into a certain yes. set of there's a time frame options. that's expected yeah. yeah so it's like go 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 honestly I think you say about the rush and such but I feel like there's such no matter what period you start this journey, it feels like a rush because they're like, right, go, 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 pick your GCSE options. Okay, then that will directly lead into what options you can now pick for A-levels. Okay, now that will directly lead into what you can choose to do for a degree. Yeah. Okay, now that decides what job you can get. And it's like, all right, so by the time you're 21, decisions you made when you were 16 have now affected the jobs that you're looking at on Indeed. <laughs> um, or- yeah other job sites are available but you know um there's i think and and there's this kind of like pressure that it's like well you need to get by the time you're 30 you need to have a mortgage and you need to um be with the person that you're going to be with forever Mm. and you need to have um you know you're probably if you're a woman you should probably get going with the kids if you've not Mm. already because your clock's ticking and um, what about that career though mm. and it's all like and you should be in the career that you want to be in forever but I think we should normalise moving around jobs and... yeah I guess you're feeling that to some degree now um, I, I suppose what all I would say is yes you're right absolutely and I think I think that's prob- probably coming under some pressure yeah to change isn't it I mm-hmm. think I think people are starting to especially as we live longer and we have longer careers yeah. like why do we need to be in it by the time mm. we're 30 because we've got another at least 30 yeah, to 40 exactly. years yeah so it's like what if you you do it for a bit and, it, and mm. you don't want to do it anymore but you need to because it earns well or because it's that's a good job but i do think i don't want to look as though i'm saying it's i was worse than everybody else because there are lots mm. of people in the same position for all sorts of different reasons might happen to be because of my religion mm. for others it could be because they were looking after um, parents or something, you know, and they, they were a carer. There's lots of reasons why people have to go back to education later. But I think even if you're in the, the wrong career, at least you've got some experience doing mm. something. I was a window cleaner, Celine. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, that, that prepares you for nothing. And, mm. and it, 
I think it's that that I felt frustrated about. And so I'm like in my 30s and having my first proper job, mm. apart from the, the screen printing I did when I was 16. Uh, yeah, so it, it, I think it's, it's that that I found, you know, yes, there, there are people that, that change career and that can be disruptive, but they've still got this kind of block of experience that, that whilst it's not directly re- relevant for the new career, it's still shown that they can do something. Um, whereas for me, I kind of felt like I hadn't done anything. I hadn't got any qualifications. I hadn't got any proper experience. And I'm not saying that that was necessarily completely right. Because, of course, if you look at it more carefully, of course I'd got some experience. Yeah. I'd, got, I'd learned how to do public speaking. I'd learned yeah. how to train other people. And, and to own your own business and to find your own exactly. clients. Yeah. And- Upstart. I think I'm able to see that more now, but at the time, you didn't see. I didn't see it like that. I just saw all the wasted years, mm. um, and so I felt I was in. I was in a rush. Yeah, mm. um, that led me to end end up doing my own business when I got made redundant again uh, in again. 2008. Yeah, 2008, big, big crash. crash. <laughs> We've spoken briefly about that before. Um, I then got made redundant from my role as the group training manager and ended up um setting up my own business with with the two guys that that worked for me as part of the team they then eventually got other jobs so i ended up having my own business and that's really where i've been and then during that time um i decided i needed to get my degree so 2011 i started my first degree my bsc in psychology with the open university so I think that's that's an area that for ex Jehovah's Witnesses, um, yeah, I would recommend the Open University if you want to go back to education. It's not the right course for everybody. It's not the right path for everybody. But for me, I really felt that I needed to get that education that I just hadn't got. So I, I started if, my degree. Yeah, and I think if you're like a single person without you know a partner and a family and so on, you might want to go to a physical uni. Hmm. Or if you don't have a job that because you, you found something you did actually like with the training and mm. so on. But if you were a bit more adrift, like you didn't have family or the beginnings of a career that you were trying to further with your degree, if you were just trying to find something, yeah. going to a physical uni might be good because it gives you an excuse to move out mm. and just start again. And there's lots of unis where there are mature students and you get yeah. to make friends then with other mature students yeah. that will be there for X, Y and Z different reasons. And, yeah. Um, you know, that's a nice opportunity, but no, that's that, you point. were in a different that, situation. That wasn't open to me. But yes, I agree. If you can, that's great. You had other things going for you um, in regards that you had your own family yes. and you had made friends um, and you, you'd found a job mm. that you could use the skills you had mm. and you just needed, well, you felt you needed a degree to further that. That's right, yeah. So that that just fit well for you, the Open Uni? It did, it did. And it, it is it is geared up for mature students. I think you're right that more unis now than ever, and I think it will continue to be the case, that there'll be more uh, lifelong learning. That seems to be the way uh, that careers are going. So you've, you've always got opportunity, no matter how old you are. Um, but yeah, the OU is, is sort of geared up for that. Um I chose psychology because I was interested in, obviously interested in the subject. What I found is a lot of ex-witnesses tend to do psychology when they leave. Yeah. Um, and I think 
I'm only guessing, but I think part of that might be because they want to understand themselves as much as understand other people. Mm. Um, you're never encouraged to think about psychology or, or other sciences really in any deep, meaningful no. way. And you're certainly encouraged to avoid things like counselling as a mm. Jehovah's Witness. Because um, I think they're afraid that you'll start to ask questions about, you know, why am I doing this? Yeah, well, <laughs> What's making me unhappy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you said, you were unhappy. And then exactly. The, the, the counsellor, if they're a good counsellor, won't do anything to, um, to, in, to, to make you question your faith. They're not trying to question your faith. They're just trying to make you ask yeah. questions as to why are you unhappy. But I think that you know, leads quickly. One thing I've, I've felt about Jehovah's Witnesses is that everything they do there is a kind of reason for it mm. it's not you know it's not random it's not accident no and and i think a lot of the times they are right if you like within their own framework mm. so if they if they're worried about people starting to think for themselves and question why they're doing what they're doing then i guess they're right to worry mm. about counselors because that's kind of what counselors will help you do yeah so i understand why well, they, they worry about counselors it. encourage question asking <laughs> exactly the, the big thing that I think doing a degree helped me with, even though I'd left the organisation and even though I've done a lot of reading, I think the critical thinking yeah. piece is the thing that, I mean, you said this yourself about uni. Whilst you have education at school, it tends to be more, right, here are the facts. I'm going to tell you the facts. You need to learn these facts for your exam. What you find out in a, in a degree is that what you're expected to do is basically read all this stuff, but criticise it. Mm-hmm. So tell them why you, you're not sure whether you agree and, with and it. And if you make a point, you don't get away with making it. You have no. to back it up. So obviously I did a more creative subject, but mm. you still have to... If I say, well, I think the book means this, yeah. I can't just think it. I have That's to right. be like, well, what's the evidence for that? Yeah. What in the text suggests that? Exactly. Um you know what in the film is relevant to your point you know how can this be feminist mm. you have to prove it yeah so on so on and the other thing that that was such a difference for me was you know i'd, I'd read a paper scientific paper um and then i'd be expected to criticize it mm. which means that i'd i'd say well um i'm not sure that the author has made their point about this that the reference they're referring to doesn't really cover this or I don't accept this. There's a premise here that I don't see any evidence for. And that was completely opposed to what I'd been trained to do. Because what I'd been trained to do was read a paragraph, yeah. find the question, the answer to the question the, the, at the bottom of the page, and then underline the bit that told me the answer and regurgitate it. And that is completely not what you, of course, what you do no. in... Um, in university and that's the bit that i think is really hard for witnesses and maybe recently ex-witnesses to understand the difference you know it's actually studying isn't just taking it all on board it's being critical of it mm. that doesn't mean that you disbelieve everything it just yeah. means that you you challenge it and you say all right well, why is this the case and what's the evidence for this and and how can we look at this maybe a different way and you 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 look at it inside out and that is just something that is a revelation. It's just fantastic. And I loved doing that. I loved doing that. And I spent six years doing that degree, psychology. Psychology is a massive subject. And I really want to do another podcast about psychology. Because just the subject of it 
people really misunderstand what it is. Mm. They think it's one thing and it's just so many things. Um, but I learned sort of basis in psychology. It took me six years to do that degree. Um, got a got a first. Um, and the proud, you know, such a proud moment. You came with me mm. with, with mum to get my, um, my diploma as they hand over your degree. Um, shake the hand, you know, have the photo with your hat on. Um, just a fantastic moment. And I was uh, 50. So I got my degree when I was 50. Um, and that was like a moment that I can't describe mm. how, how I felt at that moment. Really can't. So yeah, that was that was great. Um, I would recommend if you're interested in, only if you're interested. If you're interested in learning, you know, if you're listening to this podcast now, and you're an ex Jehovah's Witness, and you don't know what to do. I mean, there, there are some there's some big commitments there because I I was lucky when I started my degree. There was still some funding, so I didn't have to pay the full funds. Whereas now, I think you do. So yeah, it's a big commitment, um, but. But yeah, it was it was very important, and then pretty much straight away after that, I did my masters, which I've literally just finished this year. So that's in organisational psychology, mm. and part of the reason why I wanted to do organisational psychology was coming back to my experiences as a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, because because we used to call Jehovah's Witnesses the organisation, yeah. and Jehovah's Witnesses are a fully functional. Um, kind of almost like a commercial organization that they're structured in a very sort of commercial way mm. um, and so there's a lot I wanted to learn about that and um, yeah I want to take that further I think I want to I want to take more of the theory that I learned from organizational psychology and apply it into groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and how they how you can understand what's going on from an organizational psychological perspective so i think that's an area that i'd like to pursue a bit more so obviously when you do a master's you do like a dissertation or a thesis or whatever Hmm. um and you you didn't just pick it organizational psychology because of it being a jw thing obviously you work in sort of organizational psychology so it has you know function for your career Hmm. as well Hmm. um but you chose to make it your dissertation kind of interesting and unique by exploring um the organization yeah it's it's it's, that's right it's when i was looking at the degree yes you're right i am because i'm a management trainer i'm a business improvement coach so i go into businesses and i help them improve their processes and i train their managers and so on so yeah it definitely fits with that job so from from an outsider's perspective it's a no-brainer but there was another part of me that was thinking, yeah, this really, there's another element of this that I really want to do. And that was the fact that the organisation I, I grew up in, um, yeah, operated in this way. Um, so when it came to do my dissertation, there'd been a, a couple of modules that had interested me particularly. Um, one was around, I think the first module we did was around careers. And uh, we had discussions around calling you know, people who feel I've got a calling to do a certain job. Um, and straight away that dug into me, almost like a like a sword sticking in me. 
because I didn't like that language, a calling, because it sounded religious. But it kind of awakened in me that that feeling about what what is happening here. Um, when I came to do my final dissertation, I chose to look at careers um, from the perspective, I suppose, of my experience, but trying to find out other people's experience of leaving a high control group like Jehovah's Witnesses. And indeed, I did it about people leaving Jehovah's Witnesses and how they then managed a career after that and or education. So I wanted to tie the two, my two big interests in life, I suppose, together. My personal side, which was leaving the JWs, and my professional side, which was organisations and careers and all that sort of stuff. So I chose to do um, a dissertation which involved interviewing some ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and looking at their story about how they made sense of their experiences as they left the organisation um, and how they used education and career to rebuild their identities because that's one of the hardest things I think uh, for many XJWs if they've been in a long time their whole identity is bound up in being a Jehovah's Witness you know it's everything about you about the way you behave about the way you think what you like what you dislike what you think for the future what you think happened in the past all this is bound up with this religion and when you leave you're you're adrift and your identity has been damaged it's taken mm. a shock you don't know who you are that's how i felt yeah. i didn't know who i was mm -hmm. um and it it's taken me i think 20 years to understand who i am for myself yeah um and I think that's one of the biggest struggles that people have. So I did my dissertation about that. I interviewed um, a handful of people. It's what we call a qualitative study, which means that it's not about people filling in a, a questionnaire and then telling it, telling it all up. It's about listening to those stories and getting really deep down into their experience. And, and also how they construct a story around that, a narrative around that so that was what it was all about um, and I absolutely loved doing it I used a method called interpretative phenomenological analysis IPA um, which is really about um, interpreting as a researcher the interpretation of the person themselves Yeah. Um, which is quite unique in a way because it allows me as somebody who actually has had an experience similar to that to do this research so normally in a scientific piece of research you'd say no you're too close to it you you know you're 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 not objective well the great thing about ipa is that's not really the aim you're not looking for a an objective uh purely objective sort of study you're looking at how the researcher makes sense of the person's sense making themselves whilst at the first at the same time giving primacy to the person themselves so it's not a studying to me, it's a studying to them, but it's understanding the fact that I'm doing the research. So I can bring that in as well. So I did. So the the paper's written. I'm and I got I got my marks for it, and um I'm hoping that I might be able to publish that piece of work 
in a social sociological journal or a psychology journal. So that's something for 2021, really. I'm hoping that, that I can do that. There's some work needs doing to it, if that's going to be the case. But I'm working with uh, with my tutors, um, hopefully, to be able to do that. So fingers crossed, there's no guarantees, but fingers crossed that might get published in a journal, mm-hmm. which means I'll be a published um, academic. author, academic, which will be, again, unbelievably exciting. Mm. Um, that whole area... I would like to do some more on that. We've talked about doing a documentary, sort of similar to that paper, really, yeah, yeah. Um, but as a as a sort of documentary. So that's that's something that we're looking at for the future, um, which perhaps brings us into the future um, tense. That you oh yes, about. welcome to Christmas future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like we've gotten quite through that. I don't know. Is there anything else that you think yeah, you're missing? Yeah, I mean, or? I know that after we've talked about this, then I'll think, oh, I never talked about that, or I never talked about this. Mm. Um, this was more of an overview. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a lifetime, isn't it? It's. It's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm 53 now, so yeah, it's a lifetime of experiences, um, and of course, I'm going to miss out some bits. Um, I hope that that you and and the listeners don't just see it as a bloke um talking about himself i hope that this has got some relevance to other people who may have been in the same situation um and i suppose you know i'm no expert and i'm not an activist i have loads of admiration for for the activists you know um I, i i part of me feels like i've yeah part of me feels a bit guilty that i've let down the community in a way because I, I'd left 20 years ago and I've done nothing and then I look at some people on YouTube and people like Lloyd Evans and so on who have put themselves out there um, and I think that's fantastic but I didn't do that but that's what they wanted to do and the whole yeah. point of leaving is to do what you wanted well, to I do guess so. instead yeah. of like don't just move the guilt from like <laughs> yeah. blood guilt to now like yeah, I guess reverse so. blood guilt but I guess um, part of me would have liked to to do more, but I also wanted to, and still do, um, kind of be able to live my life mm. without having all that angst. Yeah. So I'm not really interested in being an activist, but I would like to research. So I'm mm. more interested in researching the experience of people as they leave yeah. and the psychology behind how that works and, and how we can help people. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to kind of actively trying to work against the organisation, that's I'm not that interested in doing that. I, I'm just interested in the psychology of it and and how um, and how it works. And yeah, um, it'd be nice to to be able to um, to produce something that is that is useful, is helpful, and that that advances uh, knowledge a little bit. So that's that. I suppose is is the future. Um, who knows what the future holds I still have times when I feel the weight of that experience on my shoulders and again I hope other people that's experienced it don't feel like they're alone in feeling that it's been 20 years now and I still I still get that from time to time Um, so yeah if you know if people appreciate that that's quite normal that's also a good thing so yes, I suppose that's it. I'll, I'll stop waffling now. Thank you very much um, for talking to me about this, Celine. Um, this has been a bit of a special. It's a three-parter. Mm. Um, 
and um, yeah again if you want to contact us easiest way to do it is through twitter at what sitter which is what and then s-i-t-a yeah what should i think about um and uh, yeah get in touch and please subscribe to the podcast obviously this podcast isn't just about this it's about all sorts of things mm-hmm. but um there is a, a strong flavor of um i mm-hmm. suppose these types of experiences in yeah it. thank you very much thanks for listening bye bye what should i think about is